So you got a whole uh, alpha team now, don't you? But you, but you have a wealth of knowledge that is beneficial to a lot of people, and it we can move the needle. How often do you hear a hunting podcast? We talked about this. People relate to this. On behalf of Kafaro International, we wanted to thank our customers, who we also look at as family. With this big move to Riverton, Wyoming, it's been very trying, very stressful, but without the customers and our friends, we couldn't do it without you. So again, thank you. We appreciate your support. Welcome to KafaroCast, everyone. It's Thursday, uh, September 8th, and uh, I have my good friend Craig not with me. Craig was hunting in uh, Wyoming and swung by the house last night, got a shower. Uh, Craig, uh, I'll let him, uh, before I screw it up, tell, tell everybody a little bit about himself, but I've known Craig for a while now. We've hunted together. Uh, Craig's got a good uh, medical background and a good hunting background, so welcome aboard and tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me here, and uh, thanks for the hospitality and um, spending the evening with you and Amy was great. Um, so my background, uh, mostly military. I, I joined the military a little bit late in life, uh, wanted to get involved in medicine, so uh, joined the Navy, went to uh, uh, boot camp and, you know, enlisted as a, an E1 and went to core school after that and then went to uh, dive school, uh, became a uh, deep-sea diver, a dive med tech, um, and uh, then I spent the next few years a uh, little bit with uh, the dive community and then with explosive ordnance disposal. I did a couple of tours with them uh, while going to school night and weekends doing my prerequisites for PA school and got accepted into the Navy's PA program. And then the last uh, 14 and a half years I spent um, as a physician assistant with the, uh, the Navy uh, almost about eight years of that I spent with uh, Navy SEAL teams as their doc, had the privilege of traveling all over the world and, and doing three tours with the, uh, the SEAL teams and working with those guys. Uh, and then uh, got into hunting late in life. I became uh, addicted, I suppose, to, uh, to hunting and been hard at it now for about 10 years, uh, as getting as much hunting as I can in. Gotcha. Pivot that mic a little bit closer to you. Um, so yeah, so I met, uh, Craig on a out dad hunt and he was with his buddy Vic. Um, and, uh, you've, you weren't, the, I mean, you were late, but you've been hunting a bit now. How long ago did you start hunting? Well, 10 years now. Yeah. I'd say you've been hunting a bit, but, and you've hunted quite a bit. Elk mostly was convenient, your primary thing, it seems like, but, um, what, is that the one you like to go after most? Um, I mean, black bear or bear period, but black bear uh, holds a special place in my heart because that's what I started hunting. Um, so getting into tree stand in May or June is, is after chasing after black bear is still one of my favorite things to do. But yeah, I do enjoy probably getting in the mountains and, and chasing elk more than anything. I love the interaction, um, trying to um, catch them at their game. Uh, seems to be one of my favorite. Um, I've also uh, started to become a little more addicted with some African hunting. I did that a couple of years ago and I can't wait to get back and do that again. Gotcha. So uh, one of the things, uh, you know, obviously spending a lot of hours, uh, you know, with you on the, the medical side of things, which I am uh, horrible about, uh, 
like really bad because uh, people ask me like about a med kit and, and uh, you know, what do I bring? And I kind of wing it like I can make a tourniquet uh, out of just about anything and uh, a splint, things like that. But, you know, I'm not the best in the world at uh, medical advice. You know, I generally have some Luco tapes, some super glue, some painkillers, uh, some minor things in my 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 kit. And uh, and that is about it. And so um one of the things I wanted to uh, kind of go over is some potential uh, things that could happen uh, while you're in the backcountry, and then you kind of give some advice on maybe what somebody should do, uh, as well as maybe what people should bring along on a multi-level kit, meaning if you're backpacking in, what's in that, what's in your truck, let's say, or what's in base camp, because, um, you know, they're very, for me anyway, very different levels of, of kits. Like, uh, I'm not going to have a trait kit. Um I shouldn't have one anyway because uh, I learned it once and you'd probably die if I tried to give you a tracheotomy or whatever it's called. But you should have more things probably anyway at the base camp and in your truck kit than you do in your backpacking kit just because of weight. But why don't you actually talk about, you know, your experience with that or what you you think is the right amount of gear to have in a, in a backpacking kit and what some of those items should be. And then, you know, maybe like the truck kit and if somebody should just kind of make their own for backpacking or buy the kit, or should they buy a big package kit? Like you can find those all over the place. Um, what do they call IFAC kits or whatever the hell you want to call them? Um, you know, I have one in my truck and it's got all kinds of shit. It's got a mask for giving mouth to mouth in case you don't want to touch lips, got a trait kit, it's got sutures and the, the staple gun, all kinds of shit. One of the things I've brought up to people is actually learn how to use that shit. Um, a lot of people buy that kit and then don't really have an idea. Um, and then other things have changed over time, like um, back in the day, quick clot. You know, I strongly encouraged no one to use quick clot unless they were going to fucking die. Like that shit was made for the battlefield for an immediate fix, but it eats away skin and burns the shit out of it. Now they have pretty high tech. Even the bandages will have a compound in them that that will, will help and not eat away your skin. But again, I am not the person to discuss that. So why don't you go over some of those things? Sure, sure. And first off, I, I don't think you give yourself enough credit. I think you actually know a lot more about medicine that, than you do uh, try to advertise. But um, I think what you just finished with is actually one of the most important things. Don't have it in your kit if you don't know how to use it. Um, and that doesn't mean you don't buy a kit because it's got something you don't know how to use. It's once you get it, take it out and put it aside. You know, yeah. and maybe in the future you'll learn how to use it. So, you know, don't carry a tourniquet if you don't know how to use a tourniquet. There's certain places on the body you, you put a tourniquet on and there's certain places that you don't. Um, so some of the, you know, the general things that you should have, and I, I've, you know, heard on previous podcasts that you have, you, you nail it on the money is, you know, start with your basics, start with things that aren't necessarily going to be hunt ending, but they sure make your, your hunt more miserable. So, you know, carrying some, uh, acetaminophen or, you know, ibuprofen, Motrin and Tylenol, um, carrying just some general band-aids. Um, you know, I, I, am a big proponent and I agree with you that Luco tape, um, you know, it's, it's good for a lot of different things. It's good for your gear, but it's also good for your body. So blisters can make, I mean, they, they can get bad enough to end a trip, um, but they can sure make it more miserable. So learning how to put that on, um, you know, I'd like you, I've seen people apply the Luco tape directly to your skin over top of a blister. It's a bad idea. Uh, it's going to hurt when you take it off. Um, 
put a Band-Aid or something, even if you don't have a Band-Aid, you know, rip a little piece of your T-shirt out, cover that that, that blister up, and then put the tape over that. You don't want the tape on the blister. Um, you know, so have some of those basics in there. Taking it up a notch from there, some type of bleeding control. Uh, I'm not a big proponent of closing wounds in the field. Uh, there's certain wounds that you might want to, but just realize when you get out of the field, they're going to get opened back up. So you don't have to know how to suture and carry. I, I would not recommend. I don't. I mean, I know how to suture. I've been suturing for years. I don't carry suture with me in the backcountry. It's unnecessary. I had Luke suture me. It was a bad idea. I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It. Uh, I don't drink, and I almost started drinking watching you guys suture. So um, it fucking hurt. I will. Say. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> It's gonna, uh, but you know, you got to realize it healed up pretty well. Um, you got to realize when, when you're closing a wound, you you know, one of the most important things is trying to avoid infection. If it, if you can't get it to stop bleeding, closing the wound is not stopping the bleeding. All that's doing is it doesn't look like it's bleeding on the outside. It's still bleeding. Um, so something like a quick clot, you know, type product nowadays is not a bad idea. They're very lightweight. Um, they make gauze, you know, impregnated gauze that you can just, you know, kind of pack in there a little bit, cut it to size, pack it in there a little bit, um, throw some uh, Coban or an Ace Wrap, some tape over it, whatever. Um, and it, that's that's a significant wound if you're going to that level. If direct pressure is still your best way to close a wound and, and stop it from bleeding, uh, and get it closed up. Uh, and then you've got to evaluate it. Is this something that could potentially get infected to the point where it's going to endanger me and my hunt? Um, and, and it's a judgment call. And some of that comes with experience, but most people should look at a wound. And if I guess if there is a question, there is no question. You go out, you get it looked at, you maybe go back in. Um, well, let's, let me, let's dive into that just a, li- a little bit deeper, just because... Um, Mm-hmm. Some people um, like sutures, you know, for example, from from what I've been told, they are more for cosmetic purposes than healing purposes. Absolutely. Um, and there are some pretty high speed uh, medical bandage devices, like almost a ratchet strap or a, a, a I don't know what you'd call that. Like you tape one side, tape the other, and then flip it over. It sucks this together. You know, shit, you're probably not going to pack uh, with you. But when someone gets a... Um, a relatively large cut, whether it be from a, a, you know, Havilon surgical type blade or, you know, just shit happens and they cut themselves. However, um, one person I had on this podcast was going through a, a specific way to clean it. And, and uh, you were talking about just clean water uh, as the best way to, to, to clean that in an easy way. Cause, um, you know, one, one guy had asked me, what if the water is bad or whatever? And I'm like, well, dude, worst case scenario, boil the water, let it cool down, pour that on there. You can't get any better than boiled water. Um, I am really bad about that. I'm not prone to getting, um, infections and cuts too bad. Like out of my entire life, I think I had one infection from a cut. Um, and I got blood poisoning from it. It was from bear, um, pretty dirty animal and whatever. Um, you know, so for me, I kind of just do a once over wash, squirt some shit on it and then tape it up. I'm, I'm pretty, I don't put a lot of, uh, of the cleaning wipes and stuff. I probably should, but I don't fuck with that. I just put clean water, get it dried off. And then I tape it up. Um, what you're saying, and other people have said this is you are actually closing bacteria or shit in that wound. So you want to make sure if you are going to try to close it up, um, that you, it's as clean as you possibly can, because a lot of guys, if you cut yourself while hunting, let's say it was, a. um, 
uh, gut punched, whatever. Um, your hands are in the guts, whatever you cut yourself and then you just wrap tape around it. Well, you just, you know, you just tape shit into your hand. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with that though, um, with, with the different level of cuts from a, a Havilon blade, which is very clean cut generally, um, to like, let's say more of a, a, a gouge or, or a rock, let's say a shale hits your calf muscle muscle. I've seen that harder to get to, um, close that fucker together, right? It's jagged or whatever. But generally what I would do with that is clean it. And then I just take a larger bandage and I would actually wrap Luco tape around the whole thing just to keep it from one bleeding more, but two getting more shit in it. Good, bad, like what? I mean, what do you what do you think? Yeah, so it depends. It, it, there's m- multiple ways to classify wounds. You know, whether it's superficial, full thickness, deep tissue. You know, whether we when we close it, we have to put in you know deep sutures. You know, um, that are hidden below that you know self absorb that kind of thing. Um, but the, the main thing you want to think of in the backcountry for types of wounds is it a puncture wound or is it just an open wound? So a puncture wound is going to be your most dangerous. Uh, puncture wounds are you going to get like, you know, flesh eating disease and, and things like that, you know, necrotizing fasciitis. Um, that's what that is going to come from. Um, so a puncture wound is, is far more dangerous. It doesn't look as bad. They usually don't bleed as bad, but you can't get that bacteria out. Whatever it, it was on the end of that device that punctured you, whether it was a knife, a stick, you know, it doesn't, a rock. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, so those would be my biggest concerns. You can't irrigate them. Um, you've got to watch that very closely because within 24 hours, things can go south in a really bad way. Any other kind of wound where it's a, a knife. So when people medic in the medical world, when we talk about a, a clean wound, we're not necessarily talking about a nice incision, like a surgical incision that's going to close nicely. We mean what was inside there. So even it's done with a like a Havilon surgical type blade, um, that wound is going to look pretty because we can close it really well. But it, what was on the blade? So if you've already touched that blade to the animal, and I really don't care where it is, let's you know go with an elk or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's covered in urine, feces, whatever that you know elk's <laughs> been rolling in. If it's if it's rutting and, and it's in a wallow, whatever was in that mud is on that elk, and now is on your knife. So again, going back to, well, how do I deal with it? One of the reasons why irrigation is is one of the best methods and, and literally tap water is one of the, and there's been many studies done of this where they've played it out and growing from regular tap water, um, running a, a wound underwater if you have it available for 20 minutes, far better. The next, obviously, in the backcountry, that's not available. So the next best thing is, like you said, if you had to boil it, purify it, if you have a pump, if you have uh, tabs with you or, uh, you know, a SteriPen, whatever, get that water clean and just pour under as much pressure as you can. You know, if you had a bladder, you can actually develop some pressure behind that thing. Um, if you don't, if it's just a bottle, pour it in there and just pour copious quantities of water through that wound and then put a dressing on it, tape it up, and away you go. And again, it's a judgment decision. Um, if you, you know, I've heard you say in previous podcasts that uh, you carry uh, some antibiotics with you. If it's a wound that you're that worried about, go ahead and take them. You mm-hmm. know, as long as it's a broad spectrum antibiotic, go ahead and take it um, and walk out, get out of there, get it looked at, 
get it clean properly. The thing you don't want to do, um, you know, some people say, well, it doesn't weigh that much. Why don't I carry some betadine with me? Yeah. Why don't I carry alcohol with me? Um, things like that. Yes, it may deal with the bacteria, and, and it's a big may. It depends on what it gets to, what it can't get to, how long it sits on it, things like that. But if whatever you're using is strong enough to kill bacteria, it's also strong enough to kill cells, okay. you know, tissue cells. So you've just, all that tissue that lines that wound has now got to be- heal. It's dead. It's yeah. going to scar. So it just it's gonna it's gonna take the healing process longer. When you get to us, we're gonna want to trim some more of that away um, to get back to fresh tissue that's gonna join together back. But you know, it, it's it is a science and it isn't a science in the back country. Uh, main thing is stop the bleeding. Um, try to decontaminate the wound as much as you can. And like you said. Uh, Suturing, those type of things are done for cosmesis only. They're not done. They actually increase the risk of infection many fold. So healing by what we call secondary intention. So when somebody has a belly wound, um, we leave that open. So we do what's called wet to dry dressings. We'll pack it with wet flu with wet tissue. We wait until it dries. We peel it off. Hurts like a bitch. Um, causes some stimulate, some bleeding, some healing. You're going to have a horrible scar from it but it's less risky as far as infection. We don't close those. Gotcha. And, and I think, uh, with, um, you know, that it's going to take an awfully bad wound for, for me to come off the mountain, um, meaning a cut, right. And really what it would take is one I can't get to stop bleeding. That would be like, well, fuck, I need to come off the mountain. I haven't had that now. Uh, Levi got stabbed with, a. Uh, 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 Havilon and, and, um, you know, my initial was, thank God you didn't know how to put a tourniquet on correctly because you didn't need one. Um, and you could have fucked up your limb pretty good. Now I've had a few people tell me, well, one specifically, I think that, uh, you know, it actually, um, you, you know, would take, you know, uh, would take a lot for that person to lose a limb with a tourniquet, um, you know, as far as it would really have to be put on correctly and there has to be loss of blood flow for quite a while. And I was just like, you know, neither here nor there, what my, uh, putting a tourniquet on was just not smart. Uh, I thought, and I was like, well, okay, I've seen, you know, some pretty bad cuts that didn't hit an art. I mean, an art, art arterial wound is very, you fucking know you hit it, right? It's shooting out and shit. Not, not when I say shooting out, like he said, it was kind of pumping a little bit and I can see how that would make anyone nervous, but they couldn't get the bleeding to stop. And so he was telling me, he said it hurt so bad. Like the moment it slipped, he was like, Oh, thank God. Uh, when they were trying to put the tourniquet on, when you put a tourniquet on direct correctly, um, again, and I haven't went through any training in a while, but you're cutting off every bit of fucking blood flow humanly possible to that specific uh, limb, right? So let's say I cut, um, let's just say I cut the shit out of my forearm towards my wrist uh, to the bone. Um, if we think that that's going, I'm going to bleed out from that, you would need to put a tourniquet on because that stops that bleeding and me fucking dying. That is the easiest way somebody ever explained to when to use a tourniquet. You're going to bleed out. Put the fucking tourniquet on. Yeah. Let's hear your thoughts on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> tourniquets fell out of favor in the, in the um, civilian world many, many years ago, um, 30 plus years ago when I first got into medicine. Uh, and then through um, combat casualty care, CCCC, uh, they 
they've kind of revived that and, and it's become more commonplace in the civilian sector. Hospitals are having to do a lot of damage repair because of them, mm-hmm. um, because they're not being used properly and unnecessarily. So in Levi's case, and I, I saw, I think some of the, you know, some of his pictures and posts about it and stuff like that. You're right. He didn't need it. Um, the biggest thing with that, if they had got it on, he wouldn't have tolerated it. Yeah. So it's only going to stay on, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, how it, depending on how tough Levi is, yeah. he's going to take it off. Yeah. Um, also there's nothing wrong, even in medicine, some people will argue this and, and they're welcome to that. Uh, there's nothing wrong with using a tourniquet as a temporizing method. That That's what I have been told. There's nothing wrong with that. Or to even put it on top of the bandage or the dressing sure. to crank it down tighter so you don't have to have somebody holding it on with their hand. There's a dressing made that does exactly that. It's called an Israeli dressing. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, get an Israeli dressing. That's, a, a fair, again, a fairly lightweight thing. You could use it actually as a tourniquet. And remember, there's two types of tourniquets. There's a venous tourniquet and an arterial tourniquet, right? So when you go to get your blood drawn, they're using a venous tourniquet to make sure that vein pop, you know, plumps, plumps up, makes it easier for them to do their job, but they're not cutting off your arterial supply. That's up a level, if you will. Yeah. So, um, you know, in Levi's case, my guess is they had hit a pretty decent vein and not an artery. Yeah. Um, and it'll still pump. I mean, yeah. veins pump. Yeah. You know, so, um, but again, you know, Back to, you can use tourniquets. I've used tourniquets as a temporizing, what's an example? I had somebody cut their finger off with a skill saw. Yeah. I was by myself. I'm like, hey, I don't have, I can't hold pressure on this (laughs) and make the phone calls to get you the hell out of here. Yeah. You know? So I threw, and the tourniquet that I chose to use at that time was something that spread out the distance, if you will. Um, so it does less tissue damage, less painful, et cetera. It was just a, a blood pressure cuff. Yeah. I mean, that's what it does, right? It, you pump it up high enough that it cuts off your arterial supply and then we let it down. So I put that on there. Well, you know, 10 minutes later, it, you know, this, uh, this seal, this team guy is screaming at me to take this thing off. He can't stand it any longer. Yeah. So I let it down. Bleeding had stopped. It had done its job. It was a temporizing thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's nothing wrong with with putting a tourniquet. Now, you don't want to let it down after 12 hours. Right. Because now all that blood that you're letting to flow back in the body from that, um, that damaged tissue is, call it poisonous for layman's term, if you will. It's it's getting back into your system and it can, it's going to make you septic. Gotcha. So that's when you don't want to let it down. But if it's been on there for 15 minutes while you were doing something, you're making a phone call, you're, you know, you're pressing your SOS button on your inReach, whatever you're doing, um, there's nothing wrong with letting that down. And if it stopped the bleeding, great. Yeah. You know, and you only need to pump it up or, or tighten it if it's a tourniquet. You only need to tighten it tight enough until the bleeding stops. Yeah. There's no need to keep going. Yeah. You know, until he's screaming. Yeah. Kind of thing. The, and it, the, the limited experience I have, um, you know, with this where I didn't have someone with me that knew what the fuck they were doing um, was I, I literally took took my, it's basically combat bandage, combat gauze, and uh, put that over the cut. And then I put, but for laziness purposes, put the tourniquet over it. And I didn't grief the fucker down. I just got a fairly tight rather than me put my hand over it. And I'm like, all right, lay there. And uh, in, in one case, the guy was cold. I put some covers, you know, my jacket over him. And I'm like, dude, just chill. 
Uh, you know, obviously, I, shock wasn't, I didn't think was a big issue, but semi-treated for shock in the sense of I I didn't, like, do a full-on assessment and treat him for shock, but I'm like, calm the fuck down, dude. It's not that bad, right? Like, chill, lay and back. And that's probably the type of shock that he was, it was all self-induced. It was yeah. just a psychotic shock. He's yeah. just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I've, yeah. I've cut myself in the back. Am I going to bleed out? Yeah. yeah. And, and I literally was just like, hey, lay back, chill out, get a pillow, you know, let me cover you up, let me get this. And I cranked it down, and then, um, you know, he kept asking, asking me, is it still bleeding? I'm like, dude, it's only been on there for like fucking four minutes. Get, give it a minute to, to do its job. Cause when you hit an animal, um, you know, depending upon, you know, blood trail. Yeah. You, you generally, um, you know, worst case scenario, you find a bed where of an animal you hit, there's coagulated blood in the bed and then you never find the fucking thing, right? The, the, the human body or that deer's body did its job. It, the blood, blood coagulating is st- helping stop the, the bleeding, uh, I don't know enough about, again, I wing it, right? I know enough to, to, to do some help and I know enough to stop when I'm about to do damage with this. I just gave it about 10 minutes and, uh, pulled it off and it's bleeding a little bit, cranked it back on. And again, when I say crank, same as hand pressure, right? Like enough hand pressure to stop it. And then, you know, the bleeding finally stopped. And I'm like, Hey, look, this fucker's going to pop back open where it's at. Like you can't move for a minute. Like I got to do some redneck shit here. And so I took, I had a bunch of butterfly stitches. I butter, I, I, I didn't do a lot of cleaning, uh, because it would have opened again. So I just wiped the outside down, uh, with, when I used alcohol, so it stick, I didn't get it on the cut. Cause I had people tell me the same thing you did. Pouring fucking alcohol straight into a cut is not bright. Um, and it's extremely fucking painful. Uh, so yeah, Absolutely. So it would stick. Got that. I put the butterfly bandages on. And then I just literally put gauze over that and just wrapped the fucking thing in Luco tape. Um, did I do it right or wrong? Or I don't know. That's all I had. But my, my thing was lay there for a while. Don't move calm down. And, uh, you know, one, don't get your blood flowing by running around in circles and shit. And I'm thinking, okay, we should be able to get out if it stopped bleeding. I'm like, Hey, chill around camp. Uh, you know, when I said camp, like, uh, you know, chill around where we were at, we made a, a basically like a hooch to chill. Right. Um, I was like, just hang here for a while. No big deal. And I'm like, let's just get this thing to where it's closed up enough to where we can hike out. And if it starts bleeding again, I will do something more. And it did bleed a little and it did break open, but the, 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 the butterfly sutures or stitches or whatever, the gauze. And then I did wrap the Luco tape pretty fucking tight when I, when I tightened it up, not to the point he was losing feeling, did I do anything wrong there? Should I have done anything different? Because um, this is pretty common, you know what I mean, with the outdoor world. I would say no. I, I think everything you described is perfectly head on. I, the only thing I may have done different is instead of, since you already had the tourniquet on there, um, I may have just left that on there. Gotcha. And yeah. Instead of, and I, you know, just to make sure it doesn't move or he doesn't kick it or it doesn't get knocked over. Yeah. Um, I, I may have put a little bit of Luco tape or something like that over top of it, but you can make your own pressure dressing. Um, so almost always we've got extra clothing with us, yeah. whether it's a jacket or something like that. And you know, if it's, it's a, if it's a wound that you're that concerned about, Hey, what's a $200 jacket, Yeah, cut a chunk out of it, make a big, you know, four by four inch by two inch deep pad 
put that over the wound and then wrap that that's now applying direct pressure. And that's, and that's a a point to discuss for just a second is direct pressure. What, what do we mean when we say apply direct pressure for a period of time? It's literally 15 minutes. Yeah. So, you know, when one of my corpsmen would come to me and like, sir, it's, it's still bleeding. You know, I can't get it to stop bleeding. I'm like, okay, how long Uh, it's been a while. Was it 15 minutes? I mean, by your watch, 15 minutes. I want you to put pressure on that thing and not let go. You don't look at it. Yeah. Because as soon as you look at it, you just restart the clock. Yeah. So 15 minutes, then take a look at it. Yeah. You know, if it's still bleeding, you really got to start getting creative of how am I going to get this stopped while I get them out of here? Yeah. So one of the... um uh, the, the, some of the newer tourniquets on the market, especially the solo tourniquets, when I say solo, I can operate them on my own solo tourniquet. There's very technical names for these things. I can't remember what they are. You can operate it with one hand, mm-hmm. which so is the way they're designed. That's yeah. it, And that's a combat design tourniquet because the older self-care older school ones were shittier for that. The newer school ones are pretty, pretty fucking high tech. Um, there's a, a, a black one that I have. It's pretty, you know, it's, it's got, um, the first one I got had a metal T handle mm-hmm. and the next one I had had some kind of a, it was lighter polycarbonate, whatever the hell it was. And then it's got a little loop. Once it's tight enough, you flip it over. So, you know, that when I did that for this one specific individual, you know, I know tight is like, I've put those on enough. Like the guy will fucking tell you, Oh my God, stop. You know, that's probably too tight for pressure dressing. So I just tightened it enough to where I, okay. Like a dog collar. Can I fit fingers between there? All right. Well, if I got my finger in there pretty easy, it's probably not tight enough. Oh, Jesus. I can't make my finger go through. Now it may be getting too tight. Is that kind of the, like, you know, for, for me, I didn't, if his fucking leg was turning white below it, probably had it too tight. I just wanted to get the bleeding to stop. And I have, I don't have OCD. I have ADD. I know I'll fucking look like I will, I will, it's been four or five minutes. Let me see if it's still bleeding. And you, again, you've started over. Mm-hmm. That tourniquet helps me with that because I just crank her down and then I can go do my thing and I don't have the tendency to pull my hand away. Right, right. So, you know, with a tourniquet, apply it, as I said, until the bleeding stop. Well, you know, somebody out there is going to say, well, you dummy, you just told us to put a bunch of stuff over top of it. How am I going to tell if the bleeding stopped or not? Well, one, if it soaks through, mm-hmm. it didn't stop. That may take a little while. But, you know, if, if you put enough pressure that they're uncomfortable... And they still have a pulse distally. So beyond that, you can still find a pulse. And we have pulses in our ankles. We have pulses in our groins and our, you know, arms, different various places, right? Wrists and shit. Exactly. So learn, learn pulse points. Um, If, if it's on tight enough that it's now a venous tourniquet, think of exactly the same thing as if you're going to give blood. So if south of wherever you've got that tourniquet applied, the veins are starting to pump up. It's getting tight enough that venous, it's it's restricting or obstructing venous return to the heart. Not a bad thing. You can live like that for a long time. You can leave that kind of a venous tourniquet on for a very long time. Um, but as I said, you got to set it by your watch. If it's something you think you're going to take off to check, yeah. it's got to be a minimum of 15 minutes on there. And then by all means, check. If it does bleed through and you know you need to apply more pressure... Put another dressing over top of the first one. Don't take the first one off. Just put another dressing over top of that. Reapply the tourniquet. Tighten it down a little further. Or adjust fire. 
you know, make a different decision. You know, you can do, if you learn those pulse points, you can apply pressure to them. So now no blood makes it down to the wound and it gives it time to clot. Gotcha. So, um, above and beyond the, you know, this is fairly basic and pretty normal as far as cutting yourself. Um, if, if, um, above and beyond, um, cuts, there's going to be some other, I would say commonality issues or problems, perceived problems in the backcountry. One of them, which hardly ever happens, but does is hypothermia. Um, the one thing I will say is hypothermia does not happen in really cold weather very often. It happens in moderate weather, not to say moderate, 35 to 42 or some shit. Like it's, it's a wet, generally cold that gets you there. Um, a lot of that is generally from shitty layering systems and not using them correctly, uh, being stubborn, maybe not putting rain gear on and then being stagnant for too long. Um, you know, Barklow, a lot of people, th- rewarming drills, movement is life. He and I differ on a couple things with this, but not too much. I mean, the thing is, it's like, I'll, I'll do push-ups before I get in bed. I do squat thrusts before I get in bed. Not because I need to be more fucking fit. I need to warm up, right? Because my, my sleeping bag is not, there's not uh, magical little dudes in there with heaters. My body heat is keeping that warm. So I get my body heat going. Hypothermic situations depending you really, in my opinion, have to fuck up to be hypothermic and meaning you've done a lot of wrong things in a row to get to hypothermic. And it does happen. Now, if you're injured, I would say that's a different story because then you're, you're not mobile anymore and things like that. But from what I have seen, anybody that's ever been hypothermic, they went through a river. They didn't take precautions when they got to the other side, as simple as building a fire, right? That. Nothing wrong with stopping the hunt to build a fire. I do it all the time. Um, They got really sweaty again. So let's say their lower half was cold and they walked it not dry, but walked it warm. And then they stopped. So now they're sweat, um, you know, and this isn't a 40 degree day. Now they're sweat and the upper body uh, is now wet and cold and their lower body's already got issues because it's soaking wet. And then they'll sit and wait, especially if you're lost. They'll sit and wait with no movement whatsoever, and then you'll become hypothermic. Your body starts to shake. Talk a little bit about some of the issues. And if I'm wrong in any of that, don't be afraid to call me a fucking idiot. I just have not seen or heard a story about hypothermia where somewhere in the middle I was like, you fucked up right there. That's where you were wrong, but go ahead. Yeah. Well, I I think the thing to remember there is, you know, hypothermia – Worrying about that situation is not going to happen on a nice sunny day when there's no breeze, you're healthy, you got lots of food, etc. So something went wrong to put you in that situation first. Typically, injury or lost, right? So you're, you're in a bad place already and now you can't get out, etc. So what are you going to do? You know, one of the most common things, and it, it this one really doesn't sit well with me, is people carry the little rescue blankets. Yeah. You know, little Mylar blankets. Try to put one of those on with one hand because you are, you fell and you broke your elbow. Yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, 30 mile an hour winds. Yeah, just it's open the, the fucking thing. It's a problem. Right. Yeah. It's, the middle, it's the middle of the night. You've only got one wing and you're trying to get it wrapped around. And then you finally somehow magically are su- successful, get it wrapped around you. And then you, you know, you happen to bunch up, you know, just knock against a, a limb and you just ripped a big hole in the thing they're worthless. So I've heard you talk about, you know, carrying a garbage bag. You know, I, my advice is, you know, you, you see the, uh, 
the jailhouse crews cleaning up on the side of the highway with those big, thick orange bags. Yeah. Get one of those and throw it in your backpack. Yeah. That'll save your life. So you poke a hole in the, you know, the, the middle of it, put your head through it. If you want, you know, to arm, you need your arms to do stuff. You can poke holes for them. If you don't, you can just wrap it around there and you just sit there and you will generate hopefully enough heat that you'll stop the wind. You'll stop everything for a minute. And, and, and they're beefy bags. They are. Yeah. They're extremely thick. Now talk about the orange part. Cause I have fucked that up. I've never, mentioned that mm. that helps people find you yep yeah. <laughs> so if you're going to carry a garbage if you're going to carry a garbage bag well first off the vast majority of things in my pack have at least two purposes right i try not to carry something that doesn't have more than one purpose the same thing with a garbage bag so let's say it is a sunny day the wind isn't blowing but you kill a nice elk and you really don't want to get that brand new kafaro bag dirty yeah um you know, throw the meat in the bag and, and hump it out. And if you got to stop and take a break, take the meat out of the bag, let it air out a little bit and continue to cool down, put it back in the bag and carry on. Um, if you've got a flag meat, you know, you're like, hey, man, I can't, I'm just not like somebody like me. I'm not big enough. I am not an Aaron Snyder. I'm not packing out a whole animal. I'm coming back. Well, throw the, the big orange bag up in the tree. It's better than flagging tape. Uh, you want to wave in a buddy. You know, you're trying to wave him into a, an animal. There's there's so many purposes to carrying those. But for our purpose of discussion right now is it's a rescue device. It's going to save your life. It's going to keep you warm. You can flag down a helicopter that's flying by. You know, you set that SOS beacon out. You lay it out. And if you, if you don't need it to stay warm, you've already got a fire going. You're plenty warm. You cut it open. Now you've got something that... God, I don't know. It's eight feet by four foot. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going you to carry one, to trap water. You can. There's use, a ton yeah. of stuff you can use them for, but get one that's extremely thick. And the only reason I say orange is there's so many other purposes for an orange one versus a black one. So yeah. why not get an orange one? Yeah, and I'm bad. I've never mentioned that before, and I know better. But that, I mean, that's a very good point. I think that with. Um, you know, there's a very, very big difference between frostbite and hypothermia, obviously. Uh, frostbite is your skin freezing and dying, basically. Uh, and again, I'm not, I'm, I wing a lot of this, but it's pretty, your, your shit's freezing to death. It's really rotting off your body where hypothermia, your, your core temperature is dropping uh, to a point your body cannot heat itself up enough to, to stay warm to a certain degree. Now, I don't, what's the clinical definition, I guess, or should we look that up? I don't know the. No, I mean, basically you're right, right? So your core temperature is actually your liver temperature. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, so you if know, you're an alcoholic, it might be a little different than most. If, yeah. if you have a cirrhotic <laughs> liver, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody thinks, well, they took a rectal temperature. So that's my core temp. No, it's not because your rectum can be cold too. Yeah. yeah. You know, so uh, core temperature is actually liver temperature. I mean, that's what coroners use to try to guesstimate within X number of hours, the you know time, time of, death. of death and stuff like that. They'll stick a thermometer right in the liver. Um so when you when your body, like you said, you can't generate enough heat to keep up with how much you're losing and you get below and there's different levels of hypothermia and I won't even bother going into it. Everybody can look it up. You're going to find different definitions for mild, moderate and severe hypothermia. It doesn't matter if you're shivering, you're starting to get to that point where you've lost enough temperature. Your body is working hard now trying to generate heat. Right? It's trying to create thermal units. Um, getting wet and wind 
is probably two of the worst ways. Being in contact with something that's cold yeah. is a bad way. Uh, you know, that's why, you know, most of us that go out, we carry some kind of a glassing pad or something like that. As soon as you're in a situation, you pull out that orange bag and you get in it. Um, if you're tough enough, uh, you don't have bad knees like me, get in a squat. So you're on your, 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 hunkered down inside that bag, but you're squatting. Your boots are what are taking the blunt brunt of the, the dam now. As soon as you touch your butt to the ground, you're starting to lose heat to the ground now. You know, so it's how do I stop myself from losing heat? I've heard you in, in other podcasts and, and John Barklow talk about this. You can't get a sleeping bag that makes you warm. You can get a sleeping bag that will keep you warm, Yeah, but it won't make you warm. If you're losing heat faster than you can generate it, you're going to become hypothermic eventually. Yep. And I, I think that um, when I say layering systems, because, you know, there's a lot of marketing and whatever else, but I mean, a layering system's been years, like long, long time for layering systems. One of the things that you want to make, try to make sure with layering systems is one, you use them when applicable. So you, you don't get too cold or don't get too hot. Then you have a dry portion of that, hopefully, meaning, you know, for example, I wear a t-shirt a shitload. It's like, and, and I, I'm not a big fan of cotton, but I might have a 60, 40 cotton poly shirt. That's not a survival shirt. That's just a shirt I like this one. I would wear this hiking in and then I throw it on a tree when I get there. It's not my first layer that I put on in a potential situation. It's just a fucking t-shirt I wear in. One of the reasons I wear it is because when I go in, if it's raining or anything else, and it's not a danger rain, meaning it's not anything that I'm, it's a squall or whatever else. And I, I, the weather's relatively nice. Um, I'm a little late putting my rain gear on. I'll put the rain gear on. This will probably sweat more, but when I get to camp, I don't give a shit what I do. I throw it in a tree. Then I put the important layer on quickly. That way I'm not gaining a lot of heat from a t-shirt. It's basically worthless, but the moment I stop, I'm losing heat from that moment on. Like literally from the second I stop, I am not creating body heat. And so I immediately pull out my initial base layer, which is literally usually like a merino, uh, nylon merino poly blend shirt. And then I put a fleece over it. Now, if I'm already warm, I don't want to sweat, right, any more than I already have, but I want to retain the heat I've got. I'll throw my lightweight rain gear on if the weather's applicable to that. And when I say applicable, meaning I'm above tree line, it's windy, I don't want to get cold, but it's not so cold I need to add a puffy, let's say. And I'm going to be moving around, setting up camp and shit like that. A lot of guys I see will throw everything on or nothing on. That's That layering system is to put clothing on applicable to whatever the hell you're dealing with at that time. So I try not to hike with a ton of clothing on. I need some, right? I mean, but I don't want to get so sweaty. Like when you take off and you've been there, you have six guys taking off in the morning. Half of them, I can be like, that shit will be off in five minutes. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it off then. And I'm like, okay, you know, that's personal choice. But it's like, look, within the first three to five minutes, if you're pulling off half the shit you have on, not a bad thing. But if you are too lazy or you get into elk or whatever and you keep it on because you don't want to drop your your pack and take time. I've seen that happen a lot. And then when they finally do stop, the wind's blowing, it's cold. And now they're freezing because they've been sweating up a storm. And most of their shit now is wet from, from sweat. Yeah. Uh, you, you, there's many things in there that you said, I'll try to capture some of them that, that bear either explanation or just restating. So 
you know, the first thing is many people know leave camp or people that have done it enough, leave camp a little bit chilly, right? Then you're not going to stop. The only thing that I'm happy about, you know, the three out of those six guys that are going to stop to um, start down dressing a little bit within five minutes at least they still have another layer with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good right? point. Because yep. the problem is, is there's many of them, they like, they know to leave chilly. And like, yeah, I'm going to warm up in a minute, but they don't want to carry anything. Yeah. So one of the biggest things you said in there is a layering system. And you'll learn about a layering system and when you should and shouldn't have it on. But if you don't have it with you, yeah, it's worthless. It, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you screwed up just off the bat. So the vast majority of people, they don't carry a rain jacket with them. You know, well, it's not supposed to rain today. You're hunting in the mountains, you know. Show me a forecaster that can be accurate in the mountains and, and you know, we'll get him a job and, you know, yeah. pay him what it's worth because <laughs> the vast majority take a wild guess, right? Um, so I very rarely do I not have a small rain jacket with me. It'll cut the wind. Um, unfortunately, you hike in it, you're going to get soaked anyways because you're going to sweat your butt off almost regardless. It's... I've either got a, uh, a heavyweight hoodie or a jacket or both with me, you know, depending on the conditions kind of thing. But I, and trust me, I do not like carrying heavy packs. Um, I will suffer through an extra five pounds um, to carry those articles of clothing where the vast, vast majority of people do not. So having it with you, knowing how to use it, leave camp a little bit chilly, um, as I said, you know, the guy that has to stop five minutes later, fine. At least, at least he's got it. At yeah. least he's got it for the next time we stop. Because a guy like me, um, I weigh a buck seventy-five. Um, if it's eighty degrees, seventy degrees out, uh, there's. I don't care if it's flat. I don't care if it's downhill. By the time I stop, I am going to be wet. Yeah. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. I'm going to be wet. There's. I've yet to find anything I can hunt in or hike in and not sweat. So I know when I stop and I'll adjust it. I hiked in a couple of nights ago, helped the guys uh, pack out a bull. By the time I got there, uh, it was a mile and a half in, um, I was soaking wet. My shirt was drenched. Well, there was a nice bit of sun. It was in a, in a hole enough that there was no breeze. Instead of me chilling off by me drying out my shirt, I actually took my shirt off. I hung it in the tree and I just went and stood in the sun with bare skin. Yeah dried the, the sweat off my body. There was no wind to cool me down. The wind, you know, the, 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 just the ambient air in there dried out my shirt in about 10 minutes. I threw it back on. I was comfortable. Yeah. I would have actually chilled off and had to put my hoodie on, which I didn't want to do at yeah. that point because you're going to get your hoodie damp, right? There's, there's an advantage and disadvantage. You're trapping in some of that heat, which helps dry that, but you're also transferring some of that moisture now over to that hoodie. Yep. And I think where, like with the sweating thing, I'm kind of like you. I'm always going to sweat. I do the, I try my damnedest to keep the least amount of things sweat filled clothing wise. So when I say that, meaning as an example, and this is stuff, I think it, for me, it becomes more second nature, but I want people to think about this. If we're breaking down an elk last light or in the dark, I'm probably going to have a a puffy on and and a a hooded fleece because I'm I'm not going to get, you're not doing that much work breaking down an elk. Now, if it's in a really shitty shitty situation, yeah, disregard what I said, but you're not moving much and and you're going to have some body heat. But if I'm not going to sweat and let's say it's dropping into the, that 30, 32, 34 range where it's cold, but it's not 
oh my God, cold. And I would say you get a fake sense of um, security at that 30 to 32 range while you're breaking down an elk. It does not seem as cold as it is because you're moving enough. And so one of the things that I have really tried to do is, is, is keep from the moment that we're done with the elk, knowing I'm about to have 60 to 120 pounds on me, I don't, I don't put much on coming out um, because it's not that I'm not maybe a little chilly. I'm a hundred percent potentially, especially my arms going to be chilly. The fact is if something goes wrong with that scenario, it's going to be a broken ankle, a, a fucked up knee. Something's going to happen where I need to have a lot of dry clothes on and my body is producing heat, but it is losing it quickly. And this is for me, everybody's a little bit different, meaning if we, or let's just say we crap out that night, like we just aren't going to make it. I want when I stop to have everything to throw it on and dry immediately. Absolutely. And, and it, I think the key, you know, the key to that is, is pack appropriately when you're getting ready to hike out of there. Right. Yeah. So I agree with you. I would, you know, um, I never hunt in a short sleeve shirt. I just don't. Yeah. Um, so I would hike out of there just in my first layer, lightweight, you know, long shirt. It's going to get soaked. I don't care if it's 32 degrees out, it's still going to get wet, especially on my back, you know, um, around my waist. You know, one of the things that, that bugs me and I, I have not figured out a way around it is my bino harness, my chest pack gets soaked. Yeah. I, I haven't figured out a way to not get it wet. My shirt will dry up. That thing will be wet an hour later. Yeah. You know, and it's, that's an easy place to chill down from. Um, but make sure you've got that layering that you're going to need when you stop. Yeah, because um, I mean, unless you are lucky enough to kill it a couple hundred yards from your truck, most guys, you know, are going to take a break. Yeah. So as soon as you break, I would probably pull off that wet shirt. That's what I. That's where Barkley and I disagree. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. He, yeah, he he wants to use your body to heat it up to dry it. I don't do that shit. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as you take off again, you're going to get it wet again. Yeah. Now, if you're going to stop for the night and you want to dry it quickly and stay in it for some reason that you don't have enough other stuff. But I'm fine with taking off that long sleeve, lightweight shirt, hanging it in a tree, throwing on my hoodie, throwing on my jacket, sit there and stay warm, or even maybe just cool off a little bit. Um, and then when we're ready to go, and even if the shirt hasn't dried out completely, it yeah, it sucks. It's cold, you know, but as soon as you start cranking up again, you, you're going to, because if you did dry it with your body heat, you yeah. cooled your body down to do that. You, there's, there's a transfer of energy there. So you'd cool your body down to do that. Five minutes into your, your hike, you, if you, you just got it wet again. Yeah. And I, I think in context, John may have different scenarios where he'd give different advice, but he was like, when I get to camp, that was one of them. I immediately take that shirt off, generally throw on a grid fleece. Um, I let that sit out in the sun maybe, or wind, you know, as long as it's not raining, I'm letting it sit out. Um, and, and I don't know that there's a right or a wrong. It's really what's right or wrong for, for you. Uh, me, you know, per, like I don't mind throwing that wet shirt back on when I take off because I heat up quick. Um, you know, packing out an animal or some of the things we're talking about now with hypothermia or glassing for a long time, you're stuck on the side of a mountain and a storm comes in or whatever, the things that you do in the initial onset of whatever's about to come, meaning if a storm's coming, one of the first things I do is put clothes on and then I build a fire. You heat your body up. So let's say you're chilly because you've been glassing and then you drop down into the tree line. 
Um, you didn't move enough to generate much heat. I'll throw those clothes on because while I'm gathering firewood, I've built up body heat to trap inside with that system I've put on. And then the fire is a bonus and it gives you some shit to do. And, and it's important, helps your clothes stay dry or whatever. When people don't take those steps is when I found they get in, in trouble. So for example, you're three miles away from your tent. Um, that scenario just happened. You were glassing. So you were chilled. Storm comes in. You're going to be soaked from A to B if you try to go back to your your camp. It's a, it's, a, it's a judgment call. Do you try to make it back or do you want to keep glassing when the storm leaves? It's, oh, they ran in and they didn't want to put their rain gear on. I'm guilty of that. Now they're soaked. Okay, well, now they're going to try to go back up and glass. Okay, they go back up and glass. Now they're even chillier, but the weather's moderate to shitty, but not horrible. Now they're trying to go back to their tent and they can't find the fucker. Then you're in trouble. Everything's gone wrong at that point. Yeah, I mean that's the, Murphy's law, or you know all yeah. the holes, all the holes <laughs> in the Swiss cheese are going to start lining up. You know, yeah. when you screw up once, you're just opening up a, a door for other possibilities, right? Yeah. Nobody finds himself in a survival situation on a beautiful sunny day where there's no wind. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. It's at night. It's on the side of a hill. You you got a broken wing because you just fell down. Um, it's easy, right? So don't. I guess the thing is, don't put yourself in a situation where those holes can start lining up. Be smart about it, right? If you, you screwed up once, don't push it further and, and wait for the next screw up because um, it's going to come. You know, it, eventually it will catch up. You spend enough time in the back country, you'll live through some of these things. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably, I don't want to say a problem that I put myself in such bad positions. I'm very... Maybe not in my life because I'm a horrible adult, but I'm very anal retentive on certain steps and processes while I'm back there. And layering systems, one of them, a fire is another one. Um, you know, swapping out certain clothing, making sure like a lot of guys will leave their gear out before they leave. Uh, and then a storm because it was nice when they left, putting a, a rain cover over my pack when I go on a stop. You know, there's a lot of things that. I didn't just come up with those. I have been royally screwed that I did some specific things. And I've read a lot of books on survival, not like survival, like building snares, but people that have put themselves into positions, uh, survival type positions. And one of the things that was, was talked about, whether it meaning an injury or death, was there was a lot of red flags. So when people were like, um, oh, this was an accident, when you dissect it, it wasn't an accident there was a lot of red flags that popped up before the accident that were screaming, Hey, dumb shit, stop. Or, Hey, you know, crossing, let's say a raised ice field where you've got raised snow went across it three different days. And around 10 o'clock it starts to raise, uh, you know, that fourth day they weren't lucky. And that broke free, slid to the bottom of the mountain, leg broke, froze to death, whatever, um, climbing cold weather situations like storms, there's a lot of things telling you what to do. It's if you choose to listen to, to what Mother Nature is, is, is telling you. Um, and again, like you talked about the garbage bag, many times I just get in one, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I'll just get inside it because to trap in body heat um, and stay dry. Or if I have to stay the night in the, 
the, the woods. And that, you know, usually shit's gone. Usually that's a pack out and we just can't make it. You can make the best of that situation. Is it going to be five-star accommodations? No. I'll take as much pine boughs, things like that. Try to get off the ground a little bit. I'll get inside a garbage bag and then I get inside my pack and then I pile up a bunch of firewood. Usually by the time I wake up shivering, I throw some more wood on the fire. I get a little more sleep. You know what I mean? And so I try to make the best of that rather than I'm just going to lay here all night. You can get yourself in a bad position from, you know, bad decisions, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, you know, one thing we haven't really touched on a whole lot is, is the mental aspect of, of surviving a bad situation and, and going back to the earlier stuff, whether it's dealing with a cut, you know, uh, the individual that, you know, you, he's, he was getting cold in a situation where you're like, well, you shouldn't really be that cold. You know, uh, he was just kind of losing it and, and going into a, a form of shock, not from blood loss or anything like that. Um, but if you do enough research on people that have survived horrible situations, it's usually their mental attitude. Yeah. They're, they're, I'm not going to die. This is not going to be the one time that kills me, you know, kind of thing. Um, I think you made a huge point there of listening to those red flags. Now, when you're 18 years old, you might not even recognize there was a red flag there for another you know, five or 10 years, Yeah. you know, when you look back in that situation, um, or, you or, know, or one thing I found with my wife, um, not to interrupt is I'm catering to her that she doesn't know they were there because I'm making sure they don't turn into bigger red flags or whatever. The first time we took her, um, on a, a fairly strenuous backpacking trip, the the first day the lake was frozen. We were in five, six feet deep of snow. There's no dry ground. I'm putting in dead man anchors to put the tent up. She's in La La Land. It's all fun for her. And I'm like, yeah, this could be fucking bad. Like if you didn't know how to put up dead man anchors, we had a tube tent. Tent's probably not going to be pitched very well. We had a high wind that night. The tent could have blown down. And so in, in, her, in her mind, or, or let's say an 18-year-old kid or whatever, or, or, or your 14-year-old son, he doesn't know that it could be bad because you fixed it for him. But if you have high wind and dead man anchors and they're not correct, your tent blows down. And then you're in four to five feet deep of snow, long way before dry land, hard to build a fire because everything's wet. Those are the things that like I have had that happen. So immediately I'm putting in some pretty fucking stout dead man anchors to make sure this tent doesn't blow down. If you haven't been through that. You don't know what you don't know. And if you never had a tent blow down on you, you really don't know the, the glory of not having a shelter, um, you know, over, overnight. So that, yeah. that those are the things that I, I encourage people to learn the, the knowledge before the wisdom and then know when to use the wisdom, you know, to gain that wisdom of going through it. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, actually. I've heard you say that many times before, is there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. And, you know, reading something from a book um, that, that'll give you some knowledge, um, utilizing that in the right circumstance that gives you the wisdom. And, and a lot of people don't understand that. And, you know, hopefully nobody ever has to l learn how to put a tourniquet on themselves. You know, that's obviously a shitty situation. Um, but knowing how to do it, or at least thinking, you know, how to do it. Uh, but think through the bad stuff. It's not sitting around your kitchen table. Yep. I got this. Okay. I want you to do this at night. No headlamp. Cause your batteries just died. It's freezing out. It's raining. It's blowing. Um, and you're in pain. Yeah. You know, and you've, by potentially you haven't slept in 
36 hours. Yeah. Um, now can you put that tourniquet on? Yeah. You know, so those are the kind of things that kill people um, is, you know, thinking they know how to handle a situation they've never been in before without talking to some experts that have gone through it. Yeah. You know, and I, like you kind of diving into this a little bit more, um, pack outs can be pretty detrimental, not just to your, your body, but meaning, um, dehydration, uh, and just cognitive skills. So you, you, especially if you're, you're, you're dumber than you are or tougher than you are smart, um, you can really push yourself into a bad position, hydration being one. And I'm a firm believer, um, you know, water's great. You need electrolytes, especially when you're really pushing yourself. So like when I have a really hard pack out and, and I mean like, Oh my God. I generally, first thing I do is I'll slam as much water as I can. Not, not overhydrate, but you know, I'm going to suck down an algene or two before we even start the party. I don't mind stopping to piss. I probably need to, you know, when I say stop, I'll pee with my pack on, but I get somewhat, somewhat prehydrated as much as possible. And then I put snacks in my, my belt pouches. Um, a lot of times, you know, uh, depending you'll stop to take your pack off and you can get food then, but I always put some kind of snacks in my pocket, especially if I'm too hard headed to, to stop or in too much pain. Um, having put myself in bad positions, I know that I'm tough enough to keep going, but too stupid to stop. If that makes sense, meaning tough, isn't always good. It helps. But if you're tough enough to keep pushing through it, you haven't drank water, you haven't been eating and you're just like, okay, three more miles, put your head down. You can probably get yourself into a position to where you're at least pretty freaking dehydrated. Um, cognitive skills aren't working. So if a survival situation or something bad happened between A to B, your, your brain isn't functioning as well as it sh- should or could be because you have water uh, deprivation, food deprivation, and the synapses to your brain aren't firing correctly. And you're you know, that's one of the reasons like you'll see guys count to 10. What's your mom's name? Start touching your thumbs to your fingers. There's these cognitive tests. What's four plus four plus four? Uh, well, if you have to think about that, you're fucked up. Like you've got some problems. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, I mean, obviously there's just the physical damage that you can do packing out big, big animals. And, and that's probably one of the things, you know, one of the comments we made last night, it's a, a team saying from, uh, especially one of my corpsmen that used to work for me many years ago is, you know, if, if you're going to be stupid, you better be hard, yeah. you know, kind yeah. of thing, <laughs> but you don't have to be stupid, you know, and you can still be hard, Yeah, you know? Um, so again, those red flags, uh, you got to pay attention to those, yeah. you know, when you, um, little thing I noticed, uh, the first night, you know, I, I live, I'm a flatlander. I live in Houston. Um, so I get to what my camp is at 7,800 feet. Um, I take off, I drove all day. I'm drinking coffee and, you know, a soda and a little bit of, uh, electrolyte stuff. And all of a sudden on the way back to camp at the end of the hunt, I realized that my mouth was really dry and my eyes were starting to get really itchy. And that was my first sign. I'm like, Oh, you dummy. Yeah. You know, and I know better and I still, and I you know, I carry water with me, lots of water. Um, so I started you know, hammering self. You got to pay attention to like you talked about earlier, those red flags, um, or you'll start lining up those, those holes in the Swiss cheese and you're going to run yourself into a bad situation. That, that happened. Hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this. That happened to Amy and I, um, hiked in and it was hot, really hot and really high altitude. And, uh, we were going to go in 
three and a half miles and people were at the lake and we kept going and it was seven and a half probably we were pushing. Um, and, uh, you know, when we had hiked in, I was with Frank and we got on that. We were a little bit ahead of her cause you know, we'll get ahead and put a, uh, the tent and whatever together. And we got to, you know, the lake is to the left. We're on the trail. It's 300 yards down. You can see like, there's a sign pointing to the lake and I'm like, Oh, she'll, yeah, she'll go down. Let's get down there and figure out how to get to where we want to put our camp up. We get down there and, and it's been a, it's been a few minutes. So I'm like, Oh, she's shit. I'm going to go back and get her. So I go up and she's not acting normal and mad at me. And I'm like, well, you should, you know, I was like, I gave you the benefit of the doubt. I thought common sense would prevail. You can see the lake. So uh, she's not functioning well. I mean, when I say that, I mean, she's not acting normal, but she's not acting horrible. So I'm like, hey, don't, don't worry about it. I'm sorry. I I won't do that again. Just follow me. Let's go over. So we're circling the, the water's edge around. So we go around and I'm, I'm ahead of her, but I mean, the lakes, it's, it's a high alpine lake. It's not very big. I get to the other side and I look back and she's not behind me. I'm like, where the fuck did she go? I mean, this is something I could almost throw a rock halfway across on one side of it. So I go, I'm like, what the hell? I yell her name and, and Frank's at the, the camp and I go back and I'm yelling. She literally took a 90 off the shore edge and went into tag alder for no apparent reason whatsoever. And I'm like, what the hell? And she comes out. She's like, why'd you leave me? And I'm like, we're on the sh- the shoreline. I what what gave you the deciding the decision to to ninety degree off the shoreline? Like you can see up there was where we're camping. Of course, we're husband and wife, so that's not good either. And I'm like, give me your fucking water bottle. She drank no water mm. that entire day, none. Yeah. And I was like, hey what's your mom's name? She's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, answer the fucking question. What is your mom's name? So where are you from? And she's getting mad. And I'm like, you need to answer the questions. I was like, Hey, what's 24 divided by three. And that was a big one. And I'm like, what's eight times two. It took her a second. And I'm like, we got to get to camp. You got to start drinking water. So we got to camp and she's drinking water. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to her and of course she's still mad at me for whatever reasons and which I get, you know, and I'm like, okay. And I get the tent up and, uh, I'm like, Hey, I need you to just get in the tent. And, uh, I'd set it up in the shade and I'm like, just lay down, start sipping water, just keep sipping water with electrolytes. And I said, here in a few minutes, eat a little bit of food. And she's like, what? And I said, literally I drank three Nalgene's on the way in and I'm fucking dehydrated. You didn't drink any water in seven and a half miles. And we started at 8,000 feet and we're at 11, nine, now, 11, eight, whatever it was. And I was like, you're not, your brain's not functioning correctly right now. What scares me with people, uh, including my wife is at that point, if something bad happens, at what level of decision-making do they have? You know what I mean? They're not going to make probably the best decisions because they're not functioning and nobody ever plans for that. They don't think about that. But when it comes to like decision-making, I mean, I'm simple decisions, like even creek crossing or river crossings or how to cross or whatever, you go from, I already am already dehydrated, I'm not functioning to correctly, to trying to cross a log, to falling off the log, to now your limb's broken. That can spiral downhill really quick, and I just don't think until it happens people think about it. No, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and, you know, one thing, especially 
I'm starting to get into, I guess, one of my senior years. Um, it, even as a young person, dehydration, you can put yourself into an arrhythmia, you know, yeah. put this back into a medical situation, right? So now you're having cardiac arrhythmias solely because you're dehydrated or you talked about electrolytes earlier, you know, you've sweated out and got rid of all your, you know, electrolytes, whether it's sodium, potassium, you know, et cetera. Um, you're going to do some damage and some of that damage lasts. Yeah. You know, I've heard you talk about, I think uh, two or three times now you've been pissing blood. Yeah. Um, that did kidney damage. There's yeah. no way around it. You can't get around it. You know, you've put some scar tissue in your kidneys from getting yourself that dehydrated. Uh, it's just, and it's unnecessary. You know, the, the two gentlemen that I helped uh, pack an elk out the other night, um, they realize it now and it was a big lesson for them. And luckily we talked about it and I think they're going to change their, their setup from now on. Uh, I, I don't think they'll run into a situation where they'll get dehydrated again. Yeah. And I, I think, um, one of the other things, and, and again, I am, I'm not a doctor, um, that when you have sweated out everything you have, one of, uh, things that can put you in deeper, um, I think they call it water under the bray or water of the bray, but when you just start pounding nothing but water after that, that can actually cause more damage as I understand it because you are, you're basically flushing whatever you have left out. And so you don't have any of the electrolytes uh, that you that you need, you're flushing it out. We had a guy die in basic training because, you know, drill instructors, they just smoked the living shit out of us and they had us just pound canteen after canteen. The dude fell the fuck over and died. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know at that time as a kid, you know, I'm like, he's drinking water. Well, there was nothing in the water. There was yeah. no, you know, no sodium or potassium like you had talked about. I've seen guys do that. I've never seen anybody die from it, but it, it puts them, they get much worse headaches. They're not coming out of that funk or whatever. So that that's something I try to make sure people understand is don't just slam water. You want to try to have some electrolytes yeah. uh, in there. So, you know, it's called what we recognize mostly that can kill people is hyponatremia. Mm -hmm. um, so too little sodium in yeah. your blood. Um, and you can, used to be, you only saw that in two, two actually worlds. One was the military, um, and, and no offense, a lot of army. Yeah. You know? I believe you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, military, you'd see it. And then ultra, um, athletes. So multi-event athletes, they'd have these two, three day events, um, cause they're trying to pound water. They don't want to carry, you know, whether nowadays you see all these goo bottles and things like that. Well, that came because people were killing themselves, you know, on the side of a mountain doing a hundred or 200 mile run. Um, and they over, over hydrate. Uh, years and years ago, I went through a course, um, Operational Emergency Medical School, OEMS, and we purposely uh, put ourselves into a hyponatremic state by three different methods to see which one. So one of them was just an IV. Yeah. So it was just normal saline, and we ran, I think over a three-hour period, six liters mm -hmm. into a person. Boom, your sodium falls. Your body likes to be in homeostasis. It likes to be equal. So what's ever inside the vein, as far as the sodium content, it wants cellular sodium content to be the same and vice versa. So what you were talking about is intracellular. You've lost all that sodium. You've, you've sweated all out, if you will. You're very dehydrated. If you just if you just rehydrate with water alone, that you pump the volume back up in the veins. The little bit of sodium that's left intracellular, cardiac muscle relies upon sodium as one of the electrolytes to make it work. You now pull more of that sodium to make that equal again. 
So the sodium in the cells equals the sodium in the veins and, and arteries. Um, so that's how all of a sudden now you took it down too low. You were survivable. You know, you've heard the, the comment probably many times, most people have, that have heard situations, oh, if they, you know, the paramedics or whoever had only got to them half an hour earlier, they would have lived. No, they just would have died half an hour earlier. Yeah. You know, because they were going out and we started, re, you know, this is before we knew about this. We started rehydrating them with IV fluids that, that tipped them over the edge. Yeah. So it's a, it's a big thing. Um, not a lot of us carry the right stuff with us. We just carry water. If you don't carry anything with you, any tabs with you of any kind um, or a, a food product, because that's more than adequate to get us out of this hyponatremic state in OB, uh, OEMS. Uh, some people would just eat a bag of potato chips, some pretzels, you know, some, some saltine crackers, whatever. And boom, I mean, you can turn it around very quick with food. Yeah. So having some food with a little bit of sodium in it, um, it can actually be life-saving mm -hmm. uh, at the end of a day when you're trying to rehydrate or you've got yourself in a little bit of trouble. Yeah. And that, I mean, that makes sense. And I don't... Um you know, when you, with, with what we're talking about here is hydration. Uh, one of the other things that happens is altitude sickness. Now in some, some cases, altitude sickness, I hate to say this, uh, you, you know, you're just out of shape, right? You don't technically have altitude sickness. You're probably dehydrated. You got a headache, but it's uh, altitude sickness and it's hasp and hasp. And I don't know all the different terminology, but one is you got a headache that you want to cut your head off. And uh, a lot of people are prone to that. Like that's not going away when they get at altitude. Um, another headache or another one is just dehydration, the change in altitude, electrolytes, food, water, hydrate, and then acclimating. You know, that's another yeah. big one. Acclimate while you go in. And when I say that, meaning I don't want you to take five days of extra vacation to stay at the trailhead, but don't go in too fast. Take your time, hydrate while you're going in, have some meals or whatever else. But when you get like pulmonary edema or I get them backwards, hasp and hasp. So it's, it's hase and hape. Hape. Yeah. Hape. High altitude pulmonary edema, high altitude cerebral edema. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's why I shouldn't be talking about that. <laughs> no, you're, you're, uh, <laughs> you're spot on on what you're saying. Um, and acclimation is a huge part of it. Again, most of us are too stubborn and too stupid. And we're too, you know, we believe that's not going to happen to us. So we're not doing that. I mean, I came from, I live at 26 feet above sea, you know, sea level. I went to straight to, I, while driving over a day period to 7,800 feet. When I hunt at my buddy's place in Utah, his cabin's at 10 to, um, I'm setting myself up for failure. About 20% of the population will start um, suffering from altitude sickness over 6,000 feet. Airplanes are over 6,000 feet. So when you get off and everybody thinks it's just jet lag and I'm dehydrated, no, they actually, they got a headache and they feel like shit because they actually had altitude sickness in an airplane. Gotcha. Right? Because airplanes are pressurized to roughly about 8,000 feet. Depends on the aircraft and where they're going, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so no, about 20% of the people will have a headache, feel like shit, will be yawning all the time, dehyd, you know. So dehydration increases your risk of it. You know, again, I, I talked earlier about try to carry things that have two purposes. If you know you're susceptible to altitude sickness and you're going up to, let's say you're going straight away to 12, you know, or maybe even higher, but let's say you're going way up there. Um, if you can get it, go to your doctor and get them to prescribe some Diamox for you. Take Diamox for the first two to three days. It, you know, you only start it that day. Um, I mean, when I, I, I lived at the South Pole for 13 months 
South Pole ranges in altitude. The actual physical altitude is around 9,300 feet, but it ranges over 10,000 feet because of the barometric pressure changes. Um, the vast majority of people, we want them to do diamox before they go there because a certain percentage of them, we're going to medevac them right back out of there within the first 24 hours or, or more because of, of altitude sickness. Yeah. Um, so if you can get it, diamox. If you can't, Motrin actually, there's a lot of studies on ibuprofen. Um, I already talked about carrying a little, you know, we talked, we started this all off with a small med kit. Well, if you've already got some Motrin, just pre-dose with Motrin. Um, that's actually will stave off. And I can't remember the numbers. I apologize, you know, if I had known ahead of time. Um, but you can look it up. Uh, Motrin will, will um, reduce the uh, occurrence of altitude sickness in many people. Uh, so take a few Motrin. And you can look it online. Look it up online on how to dose that. Uh, hydrate um, if you can. If you know, for me, for example, I went to seventy eight hundred feet. Well, the smart thing to do is that first day of hunting, go up and hunt at eight thousand feet, and then come back down and sleep at seventy eight hundred feet. Yeah. Don't go up to eight and stay there. You know. So uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro a few years ago, and that was a common thing. Every day we'd hike higher than we were going to sleep. And by the time, you know, the success rate in the route that we took is extremely high uh, because you're not trying to go straight up the mountain. So acclimation is huge. Hydration is huge. Food is huge. Sleep is massive. Um, not knowing if you, I, think I don't sleep well at altitude. That's just a problem for me. I don't eat well at altitude. You know, you eat really well at altitude. A lot of people can't eat. You have to force yourself. I, uh, yeah. And I literally follow zero info. Uh, you just gave out. I am a bad about that, but I also am from altitude. I live at altitude. I'm used to altitude. And so when I say that, I, you know, keep in mind if I was living at sea level, it'd be different, but like literally I go straight up to 12 and camp. Um, but I'm from here, I'm used to it and I am not prone to, um, any altitude issues. And I, I've never like, no, I mean, I've been at very high altitude. Um, now, having said that, I am very cognizant of hydration because um, one, I cramp up. That's horrible. You know, you get the one behind your knee and, you know, you can't, you look like you're having a spasm and you're stuck in your bag. You can't get your legs straight, whatever. Uh, calves cramping, um, you know, that's not um, life ending, but it does suck. Right. And so I try to stay hydrated. But what one of the things that I have had to, when, especially taking guys out is really pay attention to where they're at. Are they faking it to, to be tough, which I get, you know? Um, and then when that happens is immediately drop altitude. Like that's the best thing to do. Absolutely. Uh, drop Whether altitude. Hape or haste. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and obviously um, on Everest, you know, you see more of that than in anywhere. And there's, you know, many people die each year of this, um, you know, just the only thing that to remind people if some people are out there, they're probably listening to this and like, well, I can just skip this part because I've, I've been to 12,000 feet. Uh, you know, I've climbed every 14 er in Colorado. It can't happen to me. Well, yes, it can just because it's never happened to you before that one time physiologically, something was different. You can have hate or haste. Even if you've done it, I've been to over 19,000 feet, not on oxygen, hiked up there, hiked back down. That doesn't mean the next time I go to 15,000 feet, I can't have it happen. Recognize the symptoms, learn what they are, and as you said, adjust appropriately, which means descend. 
quickly. Yeah. And I think, um, kind of adding to what I was saying is, is like, um, you know, when I was talking about, I'm not prone to this is that I'm aware, I guess is, you know, because I've had multiple people tell me the same thing you did. Like it can happen. It may never happen, but it, it certainly can is just because is this headache I have the standard one from, I'm just a little bit dehydrated and climb too fast. Or is this a, the beginning of the end where I need to, to drop out altitude. And so if I'm doing all the precautionary things I normally do, meaning just food and staying hydrated, um, and things are going South more than normal, or I'm feeling bubbling. Cause I say bubbling, um, you can get runner's lung really easy at high altitude. When I say runner's lung, where you're a little gurgly, a little hacky, um, fairly common, you know, I don't never, you know, it's just like, yeah, I fucking smoked myself yesterday and I'm a little, you know, like when somebody drinks a Coke that's fat and they're kind of gurgly. I, I've had that happen a ton, but it's never gone past that. Now, if I'm, I'm starting to uh, see some of the things we're talking about at that point, yeah, I'm, I'm going to drop altitude. The problem I think that some people run into um, is hardheadedness, which got to give you credit. It's good, good, to, good to be tough. Yeah, but you can get yourself in a world of shit real quick. I mean, you can fucking die from it. So, I mean, you, you definitely need to drop altitude. The other thing, too, with, with the altitude in, in general, um, where you were talking, you know, like with um, uh, the excitement of elk hunting. You just talked about it. Yeah, guys will smoke themselves going in. Let's say you don't get uh, any kind of um, life, like, like I said, any kind of altitude issues. You're physically fucked. But you're, you don't have altitude sickness. That will make people come off the mountain a lot. And you've heard me talk about how many people smoke themselves. And on day three, they'll mentally talk themselves out of coming out. All great intentions. They, they wanted to go in. They were super excited. But they physically pushed themselves to running on borrowed time to by day two or three with, you know, less sleep. And it's harder to eat at altitude and things like that. They'll talk themselves off the mountain you are potentially extending your hunt by going slower. Oh, absolutely. But much, yeah, much greater than you are extending it by going faster because what's an extra two hours hiking in, in a seven day hunt? Not, not much in the grand scheme of things. And if you're physically better the next day than you would be if you smoked yourself going in, chances are you're not going to hunt much the first day anyway. Just get there, get camp set up and take your time rather than smoke yourself going in and then you're sore because once you're cutting muscle muscle tissue, that doesn't heal up quickly. You are going to be sore for a few days. Like when you lift weights and for the first time in a while, um, you're cutting muscle, muscle tissue, which is how you rebuild it. You're going to be pretty fucking sore for a few days. If you took your time, you may not be as sore. You may be more apt to, to um, get up, get out of bed and get after it the next day rather than, yeah, you gave it all you had and you did good, but now you're probably going to talk yourself off the mountain. So taking some time in general, just nothing to do with altitude sickness is, is a good idea. Yeah. I mean, I guess what the, to wrap it up in a, in a nutshell for me, it's, how do you, how honest can you be with yourself? Mm-hmm. You know, so you've, I've heard you talk about this before guys, you know, message you all the time. Like, Hey man, I'm, I'm going to go on my first backcountry um, elk hunt and uh, I'm going in for 10 days. What do I need to do? You know, your advice is the first time is throw the 10 days out the windows. Yeah. Start with two or three. Yeah. You know, cause until you've done it, you know, I just did a week, eight days in the back of my truck and it kicked my ass. Yeah. You know, 
I'm not a 10 day or four to definitely not a 14, but I'm not a 10 day backcountry hunter. I'm just not going to make it. You know, and there's nothing I, wrong with that. No, I know my limitations. I know the way that I hunt. I hunt best and, and most effectively. Um, so set your expectations, you know, no, be honest with yourself. It, not everybody out there is an Aaron Snyder. Um, you know, in fact, there's very, very, you know, I've hunted with a lot of different people in my life. Um, and I've, I've yet to meet another Aaron Snyder, you know, and for those of you out there that don't know, Aaron kicked my ass on an odd ed hunt in West Texas a, a couple years ago. Um, I didn't bring that up. No, I know. I know. I am. Um, and, and he took great enjoyment in doing it, by the way. Uh, and I've got quite a few years on Aaron, but, um, you know, he, he, uh, when he took off, he was a gentleman. He's like, Hey man, we're going to be moving fast. We got to go, you know, um, you want me to carry your bow? And I'm like, Hey dude, I, I appreciate the offer. I can't do that. It's my bow. It's my animal. I got to do it. He's like, Hey, I respect that. And then he took off and just, I saw a cloud of dust. He was standing and I just followed it. Um, be honest with yourself. I know I'm never going to be able to keep up with Aaron. I'm not going to try. It's, it's a bad idea. No matter all the medical uh, knowledge that I have is not going to make me keep up with him. Be honest with yourself. So when you go into the back country and you're coming like I am from 26 feet, um, take Aaron's advice, go slow, um, make the hunt last the time that you don't, don't be the guy that needs to pull out after two days. Cause you hurt yourself. Yeah. I just went in with Kenneth and Dan. Um, and I, you know, I, I've taken some time off this year with my, my foot and things heal up, but still fairly good cardiovascular. But when we hiked in the other, well, the other week at this point, uh, they went at a pace that I've never hiked at. I, I mean, never, not in my, not even in my prime best fight. I mean, they were just f fucking fast. And I, you know, taking your advice, what you're saying now, I'm a heart rate guy. I keep my heart rate at a specific heart rate. One, I can just feel it. But two, I got to watch on now. And so, you know, I'm like, okay, it needs to stay around this many beats per minute, or I'm running on potentially borrowed time, or I'll smoke myself, but I can keep this pace up at roughly at this heart rate for a while. And again, roughly. <laughs> I, when we hiked in, I just stopped three times. I mean, I was like, fuck it. I'm not going to, I'm going to take a break. And, uh, three or four times. And it wasn't, um, you know, it's probably 1400 foot climb in a mile and a half. It's pretty fucking steep. And they did not have to, they don't have to stop. And I had, had stopped them at one point or, or no, I didn't stop them. They stopped and waited for me basically to catch up. And, you know, I wasn't like gasping for air. I was, you know, cause I was keeping my pace that I was comfortable with. And, you know, I was like, yeah, you guys are, that's fucking fast pace. And they were like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no, no. I mean, that's really fast, like faster than I've ever hiked. And I, I came when I got back, I kind of thought about it and I, um, because I joined the army when I was fairly young and then I didn't have a hunting partner. Um, and I didn't do anything too stupid. So that by the time I started really solo backpack hunting, I, I, I learned pacing myself early. And when I say early, I was doing very, very long, you know, seven, 10, 12, 14 day extended hunts to where I knew I was running on borrowed time because I had smoked myself a couple of times and knew there's a level I can maintain for a long time. And there's a level I can maintain for a very short time. If I run at that short time level, I have to understand that I am going to have a day or two where I'm not really worth a shit. Now, you can mentally get through a lot of different things, but when you do back to back to back to back trips and you're packing out animals, 
my pace is very firm and I don't deviate from, you know, from it. Now, when I'm going to shoot an animal, I might deviate from it if I got to run, but you get the idea. There is nothing to be ashamed of if that pace is a mile and a half an hour or that pace is four miles an hour. That pace keeps you in the mountains for a long time. When you start running on borrowed time, you are basically not for me so much now because I'll just lay there for a day and recover, but you could talk yourself off the mountain like we talked about. The thing with me is since I kind of had skipped certain parts and did solo more, I didn't have anybody to keep up with or, or challenge the mental, you know, the, the man side of me or the woman side of me, if you're competitive, whatever. I just learned my pace and that's the pace I stay with. And that's the pace I've always stayed with. Now, what you and I were doing was totally different. We stay in a bed. We just have shitty long days. Um, you still made it up at a great pace, but at that pace was my running on borrowed time pace. I cannot keep that up for a long period of time. And I might keep up with them um, without a pack on moving out, but I know we're staying in a bed that night. I know that we may be sitting in a can-am for the next three hours, so we're going to get a break. But that was a fucking hole. I mean, I don't know what we climbed that. It was straight up. Um yeah. <clears throat> That is totally different than backpack hunting. You know, to me, like that is a gut check for a period of time. Go as fast as you can. And I've had guys, and let me bring this up. I've had people mention that to me that are about to go on a backpack hunt. And I'm like, man, we're talking about a sprint and a marathon. And there is a big, big difference because that 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 mer- that sprint, I can do anything, including carry you, your human body up that mountain in that time but I can't do it tomorrow, but I can do it today. Yeah. Big difference. And I think that's the key thing there. The hit on right at the end is, you know, when, if you're going to do that, is it ever applicable to do that in a hunt? Yes. The answer is, is yes. When is it applicable? The last day you're going to hunt. So the vast majority of people aren't like you and I, that can just, you know, I'm going to go hunt until I kill something, Yeah. you know, um, or until my next hunt starts. Yeah. I'll, I'll pull out of here when I feel like pulling out of here. Cause I don't, I, I don't have a job to go to tomorrow. Yeah. That's not most people, right? They've got a three a five or a seven day hunt. That's it. Yeah. So if you're planning on, okay, when am I going to do that? When would I be willing to smoke myself? It'd be on the last day. Yeah. Cause now you don't got to do it again tomorrow. You do it on the first day. You probably should take a day off. Well, now you just wasted a day or your hunt. Yeah. Where if you paced yourself, you wouldn't have to worry about that. So Knowing your limitations, unfortunately, you know, especially, you know, East Coasters, uh, Midwest, things like that. And they've never done it before. They've spent a lot of money. They've got out there. They've watched excited. all the show. They're, ex- yeah, they're excited. They, you know, they happen to, they spent $6,500. They've got a 23-year-old guide that's, you know, just finished playing college football or something. And he's ripped and he's like, hey, man, let's go get your elk. And he runs up the side of the mountain and it's his first or second year guiding. He doesn't know enough to take it easy on the guy that's, you know, my age and next day this guy can't hunt yeah so yeah it's sage advice to pace yourself i did it this year probably better than i've ever done it before um because i'm a little slow and typically i push it too hard and then by day three i have to i have to pull you know really thought throttle back take some time off to recuperate um this year i didn't do it that way I just went at it much slower, much more controlled pace, because uh, I knew I'm I'm here for a long time if I need to be. You know, yeah. If I if I don't get lucky and I don't find anything, um, I'm fine with that. 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I've brought up to this is off the medical side of things a little bit, but Hey, what do you, you, what do you do in the middle of the day? And I'm like, generally I don't hunt. The wind is bad. You know, if the wind's good, totally. But I'm like, I, I sleep <laughs> like that's it. And I'm like, yeah, I pretty much just lay there. I recover. Um, you don't have to be busy to be successful. I mean, I think, you know, people are like, I'm out here for five days. I'm giving it everything I've got. Well, one, just animals. If the wind's bad, you're not doing, you know, you're just fucking it up. Anyway, you're blowing all the animals out. So like in that midday, anytime where you have downtime, you know, sleep, drink, eat, like yeah. recover. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I try to really, really stress this. Like, okay, the the thermals are down early in the morning, and then as the morning goes on, they blow up. In the evening, they're blowing up, and then they work their way down, hunting applicable to that. And then midday, if you have a strong, good wind, yes, hunt, you know, if it makes sense. If the wind is bad, it's blowing all the elk out anyway. It's swirling and shit, and nothing really good is going to. So get on a glassing point, get by a water source, get wherever, the water source is great because um, unless it's a wallow, you really don't want to drink out of one of those. But if you're on a game trail that crosses a wallow or excuse me, crosses a stream or there's a seep with a water hole, you can get water there and hydrate and shoot something off the fucker potentially if it comes in, if the wind's applicable. Being smart about that rather than just running around aimlessly all day. If you can do it, you still shouldn't if the wind's bad because you're going to blow shit out. Uh, but if you're, you're up again, pacing yourself, sleep, eat, like don't do anything midday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned it earlier talking about recovery time. I mean, the vast majority, I'm sure of your listeners have, have worked out at some point in their life or, or have read about it or know about it. Uh, somebody wants to increase, we'll go for, you know, everything that every guy tries to increase their, their bench arms, press, right? Yeah, their arms, bench press, yeah. arms, right? <laughs> so, you know, I want bigger biceps. So they go, they're even, even a novice knows you don't do bicep curls every day of the week to get bigger biceps. Yeah. You've got to give that muscle a chance to recuperate. You talked about tearing down muscle tissue, building it back up. You got to feed it the right fuel and you got to give it time to heal. Yeah. You can't give it too much time. And you can't give it too little time. Well, it's the same thing. You know, how hard did I go this morning, you know, on my hike in on my morning hunt? So I'll usually go between two and four hours in the morning, depending on the conditions where I am, et cetera. And then I'm going to take another few hours off. In that few hours, what am I doing? I'm resting. I may be taking a nap. I'm rehydrating. I'm eating. You know, I'm doing all the things I need to do. Um, I'm drying out my boots. I mean, I'll stop. I'll take my boots off. I'll, I'll sort through my clothes and, you know, just do a reorg. And then I'm ready to hit it again at night. Well, if you, for whatever reason, that first day, you just crushed it and you went all, you know, 12 hour day. Um, that next day, you're probably not doing a whole lot. And if you are the third day, you're going to be very ineffective. Yeah. You know, and that might be your opportunity. And one, one of the things too, uh, cause we've been on a while before we wrap this up is, uh, there's also mental recovery, which people don't probably think about as much as maybe they should. And this is a little bit weird, but things I've talked about, whether it's listening to music, messaging your wife, messaging your daughter, um, getting in a general good mood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, I know it seems weird, but little things like little a message from your wife can totally change your day or your girlfriend or whatever, a buddy that just killed an elk. You know yep. what I mean? Like there's there's mental recovery as well as physical. And so that midday, I might just turn the inReach on, throw out the solar panel, depending, sometimes I bring one. Um, I'll just 
message my wife. Message, I might message you. I mean, hey, man, what's going on? And just staying in a positive, good mood, keeping busy, sleep for a while, message again, food, or you like to say, go through your kit, go through your gear. Yep, everything's dialed in. Oh, shit, you know what? I, I keep forgetting my rain jacket. It's in my tent. I'll get that tomorrow. Maybe even a little list of what happened that day. Like sometimes people need to dump their brain out, even if it's your phone. Type out what you learned on day one. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just keep your mind going and being positive and everything else. Like, you, you, um, a, a lot of people, not a lot, I'm not one of them, need to do a brain dump. They want to take notes. That's a good thing to do the yeah. midday. I mean, especially if you're going to, let's say you want to write an article or talk about it later. Yeah. Take notes that day. But that's that's what I consider mental recovery, which is also, I, I think, is probably overlooked more. No, absolutely. I think you're spot on there. I'm, you know, I am not one of these guys. A lot of people think it's romantic and sexy. I can't wait to get in the backcountry and be unplugged. I don't like being unplugged. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I don't know, man enough or whatever to admit it. I don't like being unplugged. So I'm on my inReach every time I stop just about. Yeah. Um, and because I hunt alone a lot, you know, when I'm going out in the morning, I check in with my wife and my daughter generally because that one that I checked in with might be occupied later when I need them. Yep. Uh, and then I check in when I finish my, my morning hunt, when I'm going out in the afternoon, and then my evening hunt, you know? Yep. I make sure I check in with them. Uh, if I'm bored, and like you say, I need a little uplift. Yesterday, I needed a big uplift. You know, the day before, it was so hot, I could not cool down no matter what I did. I'd find shade, I'd find water. I tried everything I could do. I could not get cool. I made my mind up. I said, you know what? I've been talking about going over and seeing Aaron. I'm pulling out tomorrow. That was a huge mental break for me. Yeah. It just recharged my batteries, both physically and emotionally. Yeah. You know, um, I got to see the, the new Kafaro digs here, which by the way is, is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the mental aspect we've, you and I are both, you know, follow the series alone. We've talked about it before. Um, do I have the talent? Um, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the talent to do okay on a loan skill set, skill set. Good. Um, yeah, I know how to start a fire. I know how to kill things. I know how to butcher it. I know how to, you know, make meat last for longer. I know that fat's important. I know how to, you know, purify water and build a shelter and all that kind of crap. I would tap out so fast. It'd probably make your head spin because I'd miss my girls. Yeah. You know, well, and I just know that about me. There, there, there's something to be said, and you've heard me talk about this. You and I've talked about is, um, Nothing wrong with coming out on day four and eating a cheeseburger, taking a shower. <laughs> Man, I, this first thing I did, <laughs> yeah. I stunk to high heaven yesterday. I went in that restaurant, apologized and said, slap down the biggest burger you guys make here. Yeah. And it was amazing. <laughs> well, and, and I've just done this for so, so long that I want to make sure that there is, you're not losing a man card coming out. It, it's it's usually now yes in my case if you're mim mimicking me and you think that it's um what's the word um i don't know whatever you get more brownie points for staying longer yes i it's cool if you can and it's cool if you can't it does not matter like for me i like staying back there but i'll pull out fucking quick if i i mean i'll make a I, scouting I will not stay two nights scouting if I'm looking at the same shit. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, I mean, the only time I'd ever hold anybody responsible for something like that is if you did it twice in a row. The, uh, which Pulling one? out. Oh. <laughs> you know, so yeah. if, if you... you know, well, when if, I say pull out, I'm going back in. 
Uh, you know what I mean? But like, but most guys, when they pull out, they can't go back in. Right. Yeah, so they, yeah. they live in New York or Pennsylvania or something like that. They yeah. come out for their five day or, you know, I'm going to be like an Aaron Snyder. I'm doing a 10 day back country and they pull out on day two or three. And they're like, holy shit. And the next year they didn't take any corrective actions. Yeah. And they spent all that money, all yeah. that effort, got back there and did the exact same thing. Well, no, now you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent. What I was talking about, which you, you, which you know, is don't, don't be afraid to come out no. and go back in yeah. if you can. Like there's nothing wrong if you're physically able and you just, it's amazing. Most people I talk to, if, they, if they're on a seven day hunt, they pull down on day four. The moment they're driving back within a hundred miles, they're regretting it. They're regretting it, oh, planning absolutely. for next year. Yep. What would fix that? And I, I mean, even for, again, for me, like I have no, I've, I've hiked out seven miles to buy chew, hike back in. But I tell you what, when I got into town, you know, that's the reason why alone works so well. It's not that it's, I mean, it's difficult and they're starving, but I mean, a lot of people tap out. They don't like being alone. Yep. You're in town. There's, there's burger joints, there's pizza places, there's interaction. And I, I will say on day 14 for me, when I come out, I'm probably a little goofier than I was on day one because I, Hey, how you doing? I want to talk to somebody and yep. I'm not a talker. But when you, when you, when you get out and you shower, it's just recharge you mental recovery. Yeah. And now if you're physically able, obviously the idea is to go back in. But if you're planning a 10 day hunt and you get to five, leave your shit in there, come out. And if you're physically able, you know, obviously when I say leave it in there, leave your bivy camp in market, come out with essential things, hike out, stay a night and hike back in. Yeah. Um, the longevity of the trip um, really doesn't matter if you can't meet that goal. Meaning let's say it was a 12 day hunt and you came out three times. That's more important than four days going home, you know, and that's why I was saying about, don't be afraid to come out and rejuvenate and go back in it. I agree with you hundred percent. You come out and you don't go back in. And on year two, you do the same thing. One, you're not a backpack hunter hunt by the road. No problem. Yep. I don't, no issue with that at all. Uh, two, if you, if you, uh, over geared again, that's another thing you mm -hmm. fucked up because you smoked yourself and you carried too much stuff. Another, nothing to do with medical, but I mean, I've seen some packing lists of guys and I'm like, yeah, I don't, carry half that shit. Like, well, what if this happened? I'm like, Hey, you can only what if so many times you need to be a responsible, um, but also, you know, diligent about what you choose to bring in. And so, you know, there's times I bring in a heavier air pad. I'm getting older. I need to sleep. I don't mind carrying the weight because that, that extra six ounces is worth it for my extra sleep. But there's other things that I don't bring that I maybe have a skill set. Like we talked about a med kit, certain things I don't bring. Cause I can make a tourniquet out of mm -hmm. my boot lace. Yep. Um, but um, if, if you've done it, like you say, two, three times in a row, you're either not a backpack hunter, you're carrying too much shit. I mean, I don't know because there's, there's nothing wrong with hunting out, out in and out on the road. I mean, that's fine too. You don't have to backpack in. No, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I've only, we talked it, I don't think how many times now we've mentioned learning your own limitations, right? Yeah. So kind of, kind of coming full circle back to medicine, um, you know, don't carry things in your med kit you don't know how to use. Yeah. You know, don't try to go in and hunt if you don't know how to do that. Don't, you know, don't, don't do a 10 day back packing hunt if you've never even hunted that far in. And then am I going to be able to get that animal out? You know, um, I don't, I'm not going in eight miles to kill an animal because I know I can't carry it out. Yeah. You know, so uh, I think it's huge. You know, um, I'll be back hunting tonight. I mean, I hunted yesterday morning, got out of there, packed up, went and had, you know, uh, a meal, spent the night with you and Amy. Did laundry. You know, yeah, did laundry, 
um, took the most glorious shower. I mean, I don't know what it is about the first shower out of the back country, <laughs> why it feels so good. And then the last shower right before you go in, both yeah. of those showers are the best showers of your life. Yeah. Um, but I'll be back hunting tonight and I'll enjoy it more, you know? So do you want to do a 10 day, you know, so 20 hunts, let's call it, you know, 10 morning, 10 evening hunts. Do you want to do a 20 day hunt that you get back and like, man, that sucked. I hated it. Or do you want to do one where you took two hunts off one night, one morning, you pulled out, you went to town, you got a hotel room, had a nice meal, called the wife or, you know, chatted with your buddies, whatever. Um, and went back in and even at the end of it, if you still both, both hunts, you didn't kill anything that other scenario, you're going to enjoy it more, yeah. you know, uh, and it's better for you physically. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I, I agree. And I, I, again, I think people romanticize about backpack hunting, not knowing it does suck. I mean, it, 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 when I say that I enjoy, I enjoy it. Uh, we talked like a second ago, I mentioned like, like scouting. I'm not, I'm a one nighter. Now don't get me wrong. If I'm doing a big loop and I'm after, you know, something specific or I'm looking over multiple areas, I have to be engaged. I'm not sitting in the same spot for more than one night, same fucking tree, same deer. You know, when I say one night, I want that evening and that morning to glass and maybe that next evening. And I'll go out after that. Um, I don't have, there's no glory for me sleeping on the ground anymore. I don't get, I, it, my, it pisses my wife off. We'll go backpack packing. We'll stay one night. She wants to stay too. I'm like, I'm good. I've spent a lot of my life on the ground. I like peanut butter whiskey. I like my refrigerator. I like playing with my dogs. Now, if there was something back there, yeah, I feel I can outlast just about anyone. But I'll be the first guy to be like, let's go get a cheeseburger. I want some pizza, right? Like I saw what I need to see and I don't have any issue with that what whatsoever. Like I've had guys give me shit. We only been back here a day. When I say a day, you know, like I said, this series, I got a night in a glassing, a morning in a glassing through that day. And I might come out that night. And if it's two nights, I'm getting up early to get the hell out of there that second night, like early, early. I'm coming out at like 3.30 in the morning. Is there anything wrong with that? It's not my thing. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I, it's because I have slept on the ground so much, I don't get anything out of scouting. And maybe it's my brain now on a hunt and I have a task and I, you know, that excites me and it's a goal. Yeah, I'll stay as long as needed. But the moment that task is finished... Yeah, I'm getting the fuck out of there. Like I've slept yeah. on the ground enough. Like yeah. I'm, I'm good. So well, you've, I mean, you've seen my truck. So you know, I just spent whatever twelve thousand dollars on this camper shell that goes in the back of the truck. It looks mostly, badass, though. Yeah, mostly <laughs> because it's got a nice bed in it. So yeah. I have a three, I have a three inch foam mattress that you know when I'm by myself, it's actually six inches because I just stack the two of them up. Uh, when my wife's with me, we pull yeah. out the bed and it's single. Um, even with that, I mean, I, I showed Aaron last night, I, I wear a device that tracks my, my sleeping and how much, uh, REM I get, uh, deep sleep, light sleep, and then how much I'm awake. And, uh, you know, last night in at Aaron's place is the first night in over a week. I mean, my REM was off the chart prior to that. I was hardly getting any, well, you know, I did that for eight days and it, we were talking about mental health. We were talking about physical health. That takes a toll on your body. Recognize what your body can endure. Yep. How yeah. efficient am I at hunting? Am I making good decisions while I'm hunting? Are those holes in the Swiss cheese lining up? Am I recognizing these red flags? Um, I'm going to be, I know I will. I will be a better hunter tonight than I was yesterday morning because I'm coming at it with a fresh attitude, a fresh body. I'm refueled. Everything's good. So yeah, don't be ashamed to, to pull out and say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm just not feeling it right now. I'm going to go out, take one night and come back in. 
Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, um, South and I are getting ready to go in on this very long. And I will say we're going to have horses pack us in, um, you know, just but South and I are both not getting any younger. He usually uses llamas. I'm not a llama fan. And, uh, but there's some creature comforts that are going to go along with that. South is a hardcore dude. Doesn't mind staying back there, you know, at all. And we kind of got a game plan for that, but you know, um, when, 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 you know, for me, that is a reset for me. Like I need to get away from the shit that I'm doing now. And I have a goal every day to hunt. You know, I have, you know what I mean? When I say a goal, like I'm wanting to get after it. If I get my elk, I'm going to help South get his elk and it's a good reset. And I love that. Um, I do have some extra creature comforts like food is the big one. And, and I'll probably bring a cot this time to help sleep and put a pad on top of it. Um, things I normally couldn't do with, with backpacking. The, the cool thing about all of, of, of that is, is like you, I'm with a like-minded person South, uh, his cameraman and, and caller. I don't know his cameraman, but, um, his caller, uh, super good dude, real good camaraderie there. That helps with that mental reset. And I, I could stay back there an unlimited amount of, you know, time with those guys. Um, reset to solo same thing it's a completely different dynamic in, in ball game when you're when you're alone whether oh, you're absolutely. way back or not so i i mean quite frankly i even though i do it enough uh i don't enjoy to a degree uh, hunting by myself yeah i would a hundred times over to prefer to to hunt with somebody and even if it's a, a brand new novice and i'm just mentoring them a little bit whatever um i far and i enjoy hunting with somebody way more than i do alone and there's others that are just the opposite they like being alone i think frank was one of them yeah you know frank liked hunting alone yeah. i i prefer not to if i if i have a choice um, and again, that gets back to, you know, kind of tying this into the mental health aspect that we taught, talked about. Um, when I meet other hunters in the trail and in the unit that I'm hunting in right now, it's, it's, you know, public land slash private property, but public land. Um, every hunter I meet, I go over and talk to them. Yeah. Hey man, how you doing? How's your hunt going? You know, any, any information that you, and I'm, I'll share anything. I don't care yeah. if they kill an animal and I don't, I'm fine with that. Yeah. You know, if they're like, Hey man, have you seen anything? I'm like, yeah, I've seen this. I've seen that. I've seen this and I'll give them all the spots and it doesn't bother me at all. I enjoy that camaraderie of the hunting industry. Um, I, I don't think there's enough people out there. You know, the, I took a, an evening and a morning hunt off uh, a few days ago to help two guys pack out a bull. Um, you know, they were, they couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is what hunters are supposed to do, yeah, man. Help each other. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not just about me killing something. Uh, and it, that made me feel good. And it, it actually recharged my batteries a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Interaction with people. And I, I think uh, uh, to, to, to close this up, if you haven't done a solo 10 day hunt, don't do one, do a solo three day hunt. Absolutely. You know I mean? um, and, you know, kind of figure it out. And then, um, you know, eventually you'll, you you know, if you like the three, you'll do a four or five. You like five, you might do a seven. You know, you might get to 10 and be like, yeah, that's that's it. That's all I, I want to do. Um, I'm kind of in the middle. I'm good hunting alone. I'm good hunting with people. I really, you know, whatever. Um, kind of in, in, in neutral. Like I don't, I hunt solo a ton and I'm fine with it. But I also would be just as fine, maybe not hunting with someone, but meeting someone back at camp, you know, or whatever. Um, Figure that out, though, for yourself before you drive 1,200 miles and um, spend $675 on a tag and then, you know, talk yourself off the mountain, have no plan B, and then drive home on day four. Well, how about this? If You know, if you got 10 days to hunt, which not everybody does, but let's say you've got 10 days to hunt. How about you set your goal on three three-day hunts? Yeah. You know? So you, you're going to go in, you're going to knock out three days, you're going to come back out. 
You're going to recharge, sleep in your truck, go get a hotel room, whatever. Go and do it again. The next year you can up that. Okay, I'm going to make it a six day and a three day. Yeah. You know, something like that. But I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I would highly recommend that nobody starts with doing that. Nobody should start your first jog and, hey, man, I want to take up running. I'm going to go start a marathon tomorrow. Yeah. And then I'll run next week. Yeah. No, you won't. <laughs> You're going yeah. to break yourself. Yep. So why do it hunting? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, with the partner thing, the only thing I would add, I guess, is you can get sick of your, your partner or be in a bad mood a day. There's nothing wrong with splitting up for a day. Like Absolutely. you just get on each other's nerves. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. I mean, you get on well, your wife's might, nerves. And that and might happen day one, right? Yeah. Like there's, yeah. I've gotten rid of hunting partners and, and I've, I think I've heard a podcast, one of your podcasts before. It's like, Hey man, how do you tell a, a hunting partner? I don't want to hunt with you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the toughest things to say. Right. But I've had a hunting partner like that in the past. My, my, the current hunting partner I have, it's amazing. We've spent a lot of time together. Yeah. Um, but, and, and Aaron knows him well. Um, but yeah, it, finding the right partner and knowing when, Hey man, I've just had enough of you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You go your way. I'm going to go wine. We'll meet you back here. We'll, we'll hug and kiss tonight and make up. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, honestly, and I'm not talking to anybody listening. I'm not talking about Frank. Frank was a great hunting partner, but I had another one that I just kind of stopped talking to. And he was, he was just negative. Now he wasn't that negative while he was hunting. Um, but in general, he was a negative person and he was a good guy. He's a great hunter. Um, when I was mad at him or whatever, I just distanced myself from him. And it was not more of, um, like, um, um, if you're going to turn this negative later, not what we did, but turning hunting into negative negativity, it's just was something I didn't want to take part in. And, and it wasn't that he was turning what we did negative. It was just in general, there was a lot of bitching about hunting. And I'm like, man, I, I really enjoy hunting. I don't give a shit if someone shoots a forked horn or someone shoots a 400 inch bull. I really don't care that there's Insta huntresses that are got their tits hanging out. I don't give a shit. I love hunting. If that's what they want to do, more power to them. I mean, whatever. It's not my thing to sit here and judge all day. And so I personally was just like, Hey, I'm going to distance or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. And there was not, um, on my end anyway, I didn't really give a shit. I was just like, Hey, I'm just going to distance myself. You have to have someone when you hunt with them, in my opinion, that motivate you when you're down, um, that know you and your ethics, meaning, you know, whether it's be frontal shots or, you know, are you going to, you know, whatever, like you, you need to be on the same page on most things or understand if you're not where you do stand. And also someone that can be there, whether it be physically or mentally or whatever, or even picking you up that, that is there for you no matter what, right. That it's almost like a marriage. And so, you know, when you had like South, South, I can depend on for anything like the dudes, he's just a stud and, and he's always in a good mood. Like that pack out we had, he was, I mean, I was not a lot. He was just happier and shit. And I was like, yeah, man. Okay. He's like, we'll probably take a couple of days to get this out. And I'm like, man, I'm not a one trip or I'm not a, a two day guy. We can do this in one. Let's figure it out. And so we, we, we about killed ourselves, but literally when we split up and South went back in to get the rest of his meat, he was cool as shit. And I'm like, all right. And then we got my pack loaded and I was like, I'm getting out of here and no drama whatsoever on quite possibly one of the longest pack outs you could. I think South said I did 18 or 19 and he did 23 or I did 21 and he did 24, just a lot of back and forth and whatever. But got done. He messaged me. We just got out, whatever. And I'm like, all right, we're grabbing some, you know, Gatorades and Snickers bars at the gas station. Everything was good. 
you put a bad person in that situation, it makes for a fucking horrible day. It just does. Like you have a negative person or someone, let's say they physically can't make it. No problem. As long as they're in a good mood about it, I don't give a shit. Like I don't care mine carrying more weight, but that negativity and that cancer gets going. It's just hard to fucking deal with. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would, if we're talking about mental health and, and um, how to hunt with, with a partner, pick the right partner, envision it like this. If, if you couldn't take living in, in a nice, cozy resort with this individual for a week, what do you think it's going to be like in the backcountry? Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. It's, it's a bad mood on steroids, man. It's just going to make for a bad day. Look at Vic. Vic is not an opposing physical force. His knees are fucked up. Uh, he's not going to get after it. He's certainly not going to be the guy that says, hey, I'll take the 90-pound pack. But I would, I fucking love being around the guy. Yeah. He's just a great dude. Yeah. He's not there for physical uh, ability. And when I say that, meaning he's, he's older and he's got bad knees. But I mean, I'm not, I would not have Vic in camp because I can be like, hey, dude, throw the sheep on your back uh, and meet me down here. But he's fucking such a good guy. He's just good to be around. And I don't know if I've never seen him in a bad mood. You've been around him more than I have, but nope. I'm constantly positive. Yep. And uh, informational and uplifting, but not physically. But that doesn't mean I know a lot of guys that are physically opposing and fucking cocksuckers to be around. Right. Where I'd be like, man, give me a fucking gimp that's happy. I don't want to deal with <laughs> you, you know? And so Vic is a very good guy. And hopefully he doesn't take that the wrong way. But it's like, yeah, he's got some bad knees and he's just not going to be flying up the side of a mountain. But he's always in a good mood. See, yeah. that's all you can ask for. And he's positive. Yeah. And now, the you know, good thing about somebody like Vic, though, is you know he's he's not flying up that mountain, but you know he is coming up the mountain. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he'll make it. It's, yeah. it's just going to take him twice as long as anybody else. No, he, I remember him following me up the side of one, limping the whole way with a yep. fucking neat bowed knee. He made it, and he never bitched once. And he'll never say a <laughs> word about it, and yeah. it was probably the best hunt of his life. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I just think that is important for people to understand whether your hunting partner's 40 pounds overweight but always happy, mm -hmm. pick that fucking guy. That guy is a good guy to have. Or your, your guy that's got six-pack abs, narcissistic, just a fucking dick but can go anywhere, he's going to make you not want to go anywhere. Yeah. So I'm you got to just – I won't hunt with that guy. Yeah, you got to have a guy that's positive. Yeah, it's just not for me. Yeah. No, and I, I – like when you and I had hunted, it wasn't a backpack hunt, but uh, it was – we didn't bring any fucking water, which was my call. Um we shot it quite a ways, a decent enough a ways away, and we didn't have packs. So we were stuck there for a while. A couple um, hours. Two, yeah. Two and a half hours. And, uh, you know, it cut this animal up. And I mean, I don't, what was funny to me, you fell off a fucking cliff. Yep. Um, I don't know. Did you fall off a cliff or you I, fucked your bow up? I remember that. Yeah, I fucked my, uh, my uh, quiver up and then uh, punctured a hole in my hand. So my one finger went numb for a while. Uh, went and went to the ER when I got home, <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was a little wobbly coming out, but you didn't bitch. Right. So you got to the truck and you're like, man, that fucking sucked and laughed. Right. It wasn't a big, yeah. big deal. And I'm like, man, what the fuck did you do? And you were like, oh, I fell off a cliff and I'm like, oh, you good? My bow is not in your, your tight spot was a 90 degree <laughs> off the bow. <laughs> I was like, what I remember, I was like. Did I, you followed me. I didn't know you followed me. Yeah. Uh, I thought you followed the other guy. Um, yeah. And, and I remember when I took off, I had called Scotty and I said, dude, can I make it across this fucking canyon? And he's like, there's a tight little path on the other side. You can't miss it if you know what to look for. And I'm like, 
Well, see, that's that's and that's death to me because as yeah. soon as somebody says you can't miss it, I'm going to miss it. I don't. And I'm sure I came out a different path than, than you did. Um, oh, fuck, I was I, literally I on my hands and knees climbing up some hole <laughs> um, to finally. I mean, I was looking everywhere, left and right, and I'm like, this is the only way I can see out of here, and I just climbed up this hole because that that there's only that's the only spot you can actually make it is right there. Whether it's where you went or I went, you can't really go anywhere else. And I think I know where you went because there was like a little crevice at the yeah. top. And to the left of that, it still sucks, but uh, not not what you went through because all I had to, I had trees to pull up. There was cedars in there. So I could pull myself up on cedar. It was steeper than fuck. Yeah. Um, but the moral of the story, we laughed about it. We went back, whatever, you never whined or whatever. And it wasn't like, hey, why didn't you fucking wait for me or whatever? It was just, we got there. And because uh, I remember when we got back, I'm looking at the other guy and I'm like, fuck, where's Craig? And then you came out of that hole and I'm like, holy fuck, he followed me. And I was thinking, I hope he fucking knew where to go because I didn't. You know, I called Scotty and I'm lazy. I didn't want to take the long way around. And I was like, literally, I said, dude, I'm in, you know, this specific canyon. Fuck yeah, me and Trace Moorhead. Me and Trace made it down through that. You got to do this, this, and this. And there's some cedars. It's going to be hidden, but you'll find it. Well, I didn't really have that relay that fucking no, message that. to you. Yeah. I missed that story. <laughs> I didn't know you were following me. So I, <laughs> I called my wife. I'm like, this poor fucking bastard. I was like, I, 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 I took off not knowing. You were, I didn't even look back. I mean, I just smoked it across that shale and shit, which that was fucking cactus-ridden shale. Yeah. I got on the other side, and I literally did not have two thoughts that you were behind me. And I got to the top when you came through that. I'm like, man, I fucked up. I probably should have waited for him. <laughs> but anyway. No, it all worked out. We killed a beautiful ram. Uh, probably one of the toughest shots of my life. And and here's a lesson to everybody. It's got nothing to do with medicine. Um, don't judge your shot on somebody that's a way better shot and better hunter than you are. So Aaron spotted a, a ram for me about 55 yards away, about a 45 degree angle with about a 20 knot crosswind. And he yeah. spots, he's like, hey man, there's a beautiful ram bedded down there. And I looked over, I saw it. I'm like, holy shit, that's a tough shot for me. Probably a lot of guys listening, it's not. It was a fucking tough shot. And it I was looked very at, tough. I, my, my mistake was I looked at Aaron, I'm like, would you make that shot? And without hesitation, of course, he's like, hell yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I took the shot. Um, Luckily, I, I mean, I got luckier. It was a, it was a good shot. Yeah, it just anchored him, and he rolled down the hill. Um, but yeah, don't if you're gonna <laughs> the same thing we were, we've already been talking about, right? Don't say I'm gonna do a ten day backcountry hunt because Aaron Snyder does one, or guys like Aaron, you know, South Cox does one, or any of these guys that are very accomplished at doing that style of hunting. Don't make your decision based on that. Whether it was taking this shot on this beautiful Audad or going into the back country, um, this comes full circle back to medicine. You know, uh, don't base how you're going to handle a medical situation on me. I've been doing this for 30 years. I've, I've practiced medicine in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Africa, in Antarctica, in uh, the Aleutian Islands. Um, I, I'm used to doing it by myself with, you know, the, the limited stuff that I have. Um, do some reading, take some classes, um, think ahead of time what could go wrong. Uh, if the best thing you've got is a Bic lighter and a, uh, a, a little rescue blanket, you're probably running yourself a little shy. Yeah. Yeah. No shit. Well, you did make a hell of a shot and that was a giant ram. So I was happy. Yeah. I was, I was ecstatic. Uh, uh -huh. Best. Yeah. Obviously the best. Uh, I got to go do it again though. 
Yeah, no, it's cool. Well, man, I'll leave you alone. Um, we've been on for a while and you got to get back to hunting. So I appreciate you uh, hopping on the podcast and hanging out with us last night. So I uh, appreciate your hospitality, Amy. Um, if you do listen to this, thank you so much. You're wonderful. Uh, your house is wonderful. Um, thank you for your friendship and your uh, uh, mentoring and, and hunting. It's, it's truly appreciated. Thanks for everything you do for the industry. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for listening, everybody. 